This episode is brought to you by Piteous Mass Public Transit. When you need to get out of town, why take a plane or car when you can travel in comfort with hundreds of other people packed warmly together like a basket of puppies? Piteous Mass Public Transit is the first choice for the discriminating traveler with no choice. They take you in, tuck you securely with other passengers in case of an unforeseen mishap. Say, is there a riot at the other end of this car? No need to ask questions at Piteous Mass Public Transit. And at every stop when you get off, the station security is there to welcome you with a warm smile and massage. Be sure to stay off the stairs and passageways when exiting. And when our listeners buy a Metro card at one of their vending machines, they can use the promo code RERED, one word, to get a coupon to receive a special snack during the ride. Let's see, what is it this week? Um, two apricots. Well, that's certainly healthy. And thank you, Piteous Mass Public Transit, for sponsoring the Rereading Wolf podcast. Warning, the following discussion is deliberately riddled with spoilers and unhinged speculation on this nearly 40-year-old book, Gene Wolfe's The Book of the New Sun. You can't read a Gene Wolfe story. You can only reread a Gene Wolfe story. Welcome to Rereading Wolfe. We don't pretend that this is the first time you and we have read these books. We want to understand them in as much detail as possible, and that means considering the works as a whole. Hi, I'm James Wynn. And I'm Craig Brewer. Craig, a lot of love for our episode about this chapter, about nothing. <laughs> this should have taken place in Jerry Seinfeld's apartment. They sit around, they have breakfast, they divide up the money. Okay, hey, hey, here's a guy coming. That's it. Uh, we, I thought we, we squeezed a little bit of blood from that rock. So there was, well, there was well, we, we talked over an hour. That's pretty good. <laughs> Mike Farrar said on Reddit, Perhaps I had some presentiment that this would be a slam-bam great time when James and Craig said, oh, nothing to talk about. They're just eating breakfast. <laughs> also on Reddit, Altbun said, I'm walking to work, listening to the new podcast, laughing like an idiot at the sponsor ad. Just a reminder, please consider supporting our sponsors during this holiday gift-giving season, whether it's a bracelet to remind you that... As a human, you must die, a handcrafted mushroom metaphor, or a biblio from Alwyn's Jewelers. Our capitalist sponsors keep the lights in our examination room on here. <laughs> so somebody at work actually found out we were talking and and they went and listened and I, they must not have been listening closely or something, or they assumed that it was like a lot of podcasts where you have sponsors and they go, oh, you have sponsors. That's really cool. And I was like, did you really pay attention? And they're like, no, and I really mean, yeah, it's all in joke kind of stuff. <laughs> she thought that was funny. She thought it was pretty cool. It's like, yeah, it's all related to the chapter and jokes about things in there that are, you'd only get if you have read it too many times. Yeah, I would uh, certainly, I certainly hope there are people who are just listening for the sponsor ads and then just, ah, that's all I need. I'm gone. <laughs> I don't care about this Gene Wolf guy. <laughs> so anyway, I just called this a chapter about nothing. Uh, and like I said, we spent a full hour talking about it. On Facebook, Max Imus sees the purpose of this chapter and all the last four chapters of this volume as narratively functional, a denouement, so to speak. Uh, he says, assembling the team is not too uncommon a method for a first volume or TV season, so it makes sense to have this chapter at this point. 
except with the twist that the team split shortly after. But, you know, that's Wolf, I guess. I'd say Agalus's execution and perhaps the play is where the climax story-wise is in Shadow. Now, perhaps, certainly, Agulus's execution is the focus of this volume. It, it, it does have the eponymous chapter title. Mm-hmm. But, you know, maybe after this chapter, you're going to change your mind. I miss, uh, considering how plot intense these last chapters were. Yeah. And I actually agree with that because of, like I was saying, when we had the discussion about Severian and his random musings on the night before, reading it this time really seems to me, and, and I know it didn't quite seem so to you, but it did to me that that was more like Wolf really pushing the buttons that, hey, this is psychologically important, <laughs> you know, to, to Severian. <laughs> and then that happens. And it it is the first time he's doing his profession outside yeah. of... Uh, the guild and and doing something trying to be independent somewhat and performing his profession also in a way that was forcing him to ask whether or not he should do it or not like it it wasn't the sort of pride that i think he expected he would have instead he had the night before all these that to me seemed like real questions about whether or not what he was doing was right so it's sort of like all the things that he had expected his life to do are getting getting put into question because of all the other choices he's made. So it the way I see it now, it actually makes perfect sense that that would be the climax. And I just hadn't put it in those terms before, but I like it. And of course, it's the first time Severian is not just a torturer's apprentice, but a torturer himself. He has to do yep. it for real. Yep. On Facebook, Stuart Ham said, well, I'm not sure that I buy the four eaves in the garden, but thanks for stretching my brain and further complicating things. Well, you are <laughs> welcome, Mr. Han. You are welcome. On Reddit, Bowen Kaj was more credulous about my four eaves theory. He says, regarding Adam's wives, I think James is on to something here. There are capitalistic traditions that say Adam had three wives, Lilith, Nama, and Eve. I know I read about the second wife in some Kabbalah occult book or other, but I'll be darned if I remember the title. Well, you know, that's my problem, Boankaj. I see the references to this second wife on the internet, but I can't find a primary source. Uh, Boankaj says that the Sandman comics by fellow Wolfie and Neil Gaiman mentions Adam's middle wife, Nema, but I couldn't even find the original reference to that. I admit my interest in the Sandman comics were primarily those awesome Dave McKean covers. So I know them at a high level, but I'm not an expert. Maybe I'll ask Glenn McDormand of the Gene Wolf Literary Podcast about that when we talk to him. Teaser! <laughs> All right, so everybody knows about Eve, and I talked about Lilith in the episode. I associated Lilith with Severian because he eats the pomegranate and is associated with a blood-drinking bat. Like, Lilith is. But Boankash thinks Agia is a better fit for that. And I suggested Dorcas as the second wife because Bald Anders forgets about her. But Boankash says Dorcas has to be Eve. He says, Dorcas is Eve, the mother of all. When God casts them out of the desert, he tells the serpent that one of Eve's line would someday crush his head. Severian is absolutely of Dorcas's bloodline, and he ends up crushing, drowning almost every head in the world. Does she sin? Yes, but it's a sin born from ignorance, not maliciousness. And, uh, you know, honestly, I do think Dorcas fits better with Eve. I mean, you know, she offers Severian the apple. 
But supposedly the second wife of Adam, as Boankaj relates, is the one created from Adam's rib. And God lets him watch the sausage getting made, so to speak, which totally spoils the mood for Adam. So God scraps the project, makes Eve. According to Boankaj and you know, maybe the Sandman comics, that woman's name is Nema. Boankaj thinks Jalinta is a better fit for this person. He says, Jalinta is physically the perfect woman, but Severian can't get over the artifice of her. She's too uncanny valley. Eventually, she's cast away by the party and never heard from again. The only one who truly loves her is Jonas, himself a created being. And, you know, Craig, I do think Boankaj is right about why Jonas is immediately thunderstruck by Jalenta. We don't mention that in this episode, but I think that's the case. Yeah, that would definitely make sense. Now I'm just thinking of the whole, like, the rib thing. And because if Dorcas is Eve and if Severian is Adam, then Eve came first in this story. Um, yeah. Which would be weird. Well, not the, yeah, not the right order, but still. But the thing about the name Neymar is that I can't find any reference to her as Adam's wife. Not from a primary source. It's the name of King Solomon's wife, the mother of his heir, King Rehoboam. She's the daughter of Lamech, mentioned in Genesis, and identified as the wife of Noah. Also, and this is enticing, it's the name of a demon, a seducer of men and angels, associated with Lilith. So now we're back to an indirect association with the wife of Adam. Also, Jalinta gets the grapes, and the grapes, as a forbidden fruit, supposedly Adam and Eve made wine from them. According to certain rabbinic scriptures, when Noah made wine and got drunk after the flood, those grapes were being directly associated with the grapes of Eden. So yeah, you know, there's potential threads. But Boankash doesn't think that there's an Adam in this picture. He says that this is sort of, or at least a point of the Book of the New Sun. This is, he says, the garden with no Adam, the deluge with no Noah, Christianity with no Christ. What would the Bible look like if you took all the prophets and patriarchs and just left everyone on their lonesome? They're just extras in a movie with no plot. Severian could be Adam. He already has his three Eves, but he's not ready. He will eventually take on all aspects of all biblical prophets, but not yet. Divinity is a waiting game. (laughs) Also, Craig, remember that we pitched a theory based on an earthless observation that when Severian is in Apupunchal's tomb and discovered that he's an equaster, he reviews his memories and finds Valeria there still and Thecla and the old Autark and the boy Severian who had been Severian only. That is pre-Octark Severian, right? And the observation was that Thecla, the old Autark and Severian only were people who currently existed in one sense or another as persons and life histories in Severian's mind. And so how does Valeria fit into that list? So we speculated that the solution to this problem could be that Valeria was somehow one of the autarchs in Severian's mind. Not the autarch she became after he left for Yesid, but an autarch of the past who lived and died as an autarch and passed right. her memories on to right. a successor. Well, Redditor Hunam Bean noted a 
mark against this theory in that Regent Valeria, who ruled after Severian left, did not have the words of power to open the doors and machinery that are only available to an autarch. These words of power, they're the only real trustworthy signifiers of being the rightful autarch. Mm, That's right. The ability to use these words to open certain doors is the equivalent of Arthur pulling the sword from the stone. Right. Right. Yeah, that's right. Well, in chapter 46 of Earth of the New Sun, the runaway, Iada and Severian are talking about the state of things in the Commonwealth since he left for Yesid. And Iada says, anyway, your Autarkia, she was Autark. People talked about it because of her being a woman, and they said that she didn't have the words. So Hunambin says, that's a problem, right? Yeah, it is, because I think part of the idea we had was that that would we were thinking maybe that Valeria, the girl Valeria, had been like a, a young girl Autark or something mm-hmm. like that. Um, and so that when Severian meets her, maybe one reason he's attracted to her is that she's already been an autark or, or something like that. Yeah. And otherwise we get into weird timey wimey messes with different versions of Valeria or, you know, something about her later on becoming a legitimate autark, which would be weird after earth dies because then she would have had to go back in time yeah it just gets really weird yeah yeah I, yeah admittedly it's a it's a problem it's not a new problem but right. it is yeah it's a big problem for uh valeria to be in severian's mind it would mean well okay i can offer two solutions here okay one autark valeria in severian's mind was a traveler from another universe like domnina seems to have been at the end of thecla's story or as i say first severian was and as someone suggested agia could be Another solution could be that Valeria didn't drown with Earth. Of course, Severian should have known that if Valeria escaped drowning by fleeing into the distant past. Maybe the circumstances of her escape are remote enough in Severian's mind that he's not aware of the details of her escape. But remember those tunnels under the Citadel, I think they are time-traveling devices. And I guess she had access to Father Aniri's presence chamber, you know, Craig, I don't remember anyone ever saying what became of Father Aniri by the time of the flood. Anyway, you know how I am. I'm not going to reject a theory that has a compelling seed just because I can't figure out how it works. I'm <laughs> still trying to figure out how that body Vodalus was exhuming could be Thecla's actively or subjectively and how Thecla can be Severian's family. I spent 20 years pondering Severian's attraction to Thea and her association with doves. And now that I believe I've solved that puzzle, nothing feels beyond me. <laughs> yeah. The only other thing I can think is that we, are there any examples? There aren't any examples of someone taking a piece of a living person and eating them, eating that part of the person and then getting all of their memories up to that point. Right. Wow. I mean, I don't, is that, who knows what kind of weird wedding ceremony that they had. There's no reason why, there's no reason why it couldn't. I wouldn't think so. I mean, the way master Alton describes it. Yeah. So I don't know. I mean, that's, that's the only other way I can think that they might mean something. Well, I mean, yeah, but I mean, I think they use the, well, I mean, they, I assume they use parts of the brain in some way, but yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, Thecla doesn't, but who knows? Maybe there's something about death. I mean, because, right, they can just all eat parts of Thecla. Right. Um, unless they sprinkled a bit of the brain. But it's all, it's all yeah, ground. I, I always got had the sense of it being like ground beef or something yeah, molded in the shape of Thecla. Yeah. 
Yeah, that is a good point against it, though, and it's going to bug me um, about <laughs> that. And it could well, I mean, honestly, I said even the grammar of that sentence in Earth is weird anyway, that yeah. it, it could mean that he's just thinking about Valeria and not literally. It's just that every yeah. other person he lists is I, literally it, somebody. Yep. Has. It, it, yeah. it works so nice. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Regarding Internaut's email, we read in the comments last episode, Redditor Pipster818 thinks we were, a, quote, a little too harsh in our criticism of the 2020 robots. They had a lot of trouble walking about five years ago, but since then they've improved substantially and I think we should be encouraging. Don't want to offend robots in case they become powerful enough to defeat us. <laughs> well, I see your point, Pipster. I want our new robot overlords to know I only read Internaut's email in order to add him to our list to be eliminated later. I just wanted to get a chance to say the word apophatic again, because <laughs> knowledge is a wonderful, wonderful thing. Yeah, see if you can work that a few more times into our conversation during these comments. <laughs> On Reddit, Cody Martin is thinking about how Talos knows so much and where he comes by that knowledge. Remember, we were theorizing that maybe he was working with the heroes, maybe talking to Equaster Malrubius, that this play was all part of some manipulation of Severian. Cody's not crazy about that. He says, I'm struggling to come up with a good textual reason for Talos's privileged knowledge, but I think I've come up with an interesting meta-textual reason. In the episode covering the play, you related the play to the book itself and the audience to the readers. This analogy would leave Talos representing Wolf. I admit this is a bit of a stretch, but I believe Wolf took it as a simple analogy. I think Talos is meant to be Wolf's direct avatar within the story. Recall how Severian describes Talos' face. Quote, in one of those more profound realities, Dr. Talos's face was a fox's mask on a wall. Foxes and wolves are both canines and have similar looking faces, but I wouldn't bring it up if that was all I had to go on. In chapter two, we have Severian relating foxes to wolves. Quote, I saw the fox trot by with upraised brush, and once that giant fox, taller than all but the tallest hounds that men call the maned wolf. Talos knows so much hidden knowledge because he's on some level wolf. Serving him as Gabriel and other characters serve Talos, delivering exposition in a way that is both blatant and elegant. I like that. I like that a yeah. lot. Um, I, it means that a lot of my questions about Talos's motives maybe aren't quite as, I don't know, because I always assume that Talos has some kind of negative motive. I don't know quite what it is, but, it just seems creepy. <laughs> but I don't know. Maybe not. Maybe not. I mean, maybe he really is that. And plus too, even though he calls him a fox, I mean, this is precisely the thing here about identifying animals in this book is always weird because you're just choosing words that are close to, to the kind of thing. So even when Severian's talking about a fox, maybe he means something more like a wolf. Um, and, yeah. and all those identifications kind of slide into each other a little bit. I like that. I like the whole idea that Talos is the one who lays bare everything, tells the whole story, but does it in a way which is not easy to understand. That perfectly works. Um, yeah. I like it. I like it. I'm going to, I'm going to keep that in mind and see what else I can do with it. Yeah. Well, that would be Wolfian. I'm not sure I buy that Wolf so emphatically breaks that fourth wall to the, that extent, but frankly, you know, my disagreement is only a matter of degree. 
Yeah. Just for the breaking of the fourth wall, we certainly get the afterwards. And mm-hmm. when Talos has his little aside about Frankenstein, I mean, that's definitely him. It's a weird that moment is, where yeah. it's not explicitly breaking the fourth wall, but it's talking about something that by its nature is kind of breaking the fourth wall. Um, yeah. So it's not like he's talking to the reader of the book right there, but he's saying, hey, step out of our own story here for a second and look at the larger context and you see something else. So, yeah, right. it still is there. And speaking of Cody, remember he was not nuts about associating Vodalus's sword cane with Talos's. He had a list of reasons for that, which we talked about. Sci-Fi Guy 1988 took it from there. He says, just an offhand thought about the sword cane mentioned in the beginning of the episode. You mentioned that if it had previously belonged to Vodalus, then it might appear as a staff compared to Dr. Talos. The symbol of healing and medicine is the staff of Asclepius. Doesn't really work because he's always given Volpine imagery as opposed to the snake wrapped around his staff. Well, you know, Craig, it does work for me a little bit at a Hamlet's Mill level. Asclepius is associated among Greco-Roman poets with the constellation Aphiuchus. Aphiuchus rises as the constellation Orion sinks, and that's why Asclepius was Orion's doctor and attempted to resurrect him unsuccessfully. So if we associate Baldanders with the giant Orion, Baldanders, who does sink, who does have a doctor, well, without knowing what happens at Talos. After the end of Citadel of the Autarch, you know, it's hard to say more. And uh, finally, we got an email from Marcus Gavea. It's been a while since we've heard from Marcus, and he felt self-conscious posting about multiple episodes in one long go on Reddit or Facebook. He feared it would, quote, awkwardly resurrect dead conversations. Not a problem, Marcus. Resurrect away. I mean, this is a Severian story, right? Just send us an email, too. That's fine. So here goes, quote, I love that you guys read out the passage about writing in chapter 33, five legs. The last time I read this chapter, it finally clicked how it might be that Wolf, quote, is our Melville, as Ursula Le Guin says every time I look at the back of a Wolf book. One way to understand this book is that it's Moby Dick with torture in place of whale hunting. Not only the first-person narrator and the blunt analogy and reflections on writing, but even the audacity of the imagery is Melville-like. Sometimes a balcony full of ogling death-wishers falls to their doom. They remind me of you, dear reader. This is the kind of passage you send your high school English teacher friends to get them to consider the Book of the New Sun in the same light as the great American novel. That's what I did, at least. Well, that's awesome. Yeah, that's really cool. Also, he asks, is Talos sentient? Marcos notes how dear the Wizard of Oz is to Wolf. He reminds us that Wolf once said he preferred the subsequent Oz books of Ruth Plumley Thompson over L. Frank Baum's. And that's actually a pretty deep cut, Craig. Those Thompson books are not easy to get. But, you know, then again, they were probably easier when Wolf was a kid. Marcos said that he read about two dozen Oz books to his daughter a few years ago. And he says, In those books, there are many, many artificial people, and the key to their personhood is less in magic than in how they act. Things in Oz are always at risk of becoming people by acting like them. Sentience comes first, the details and the consequence of that come later. Thus, 
Scarecrow cheerfully admits his totally unexplained consciousness while reveling in not having to eat or sleep. Jack Pumpkinhead solemnly buries his heads every few months and keeps a pumpkin patch to make sure he has a new one on hand. The Tin Man keeps his personality even as he keeps losing parts of his fleshy body and replacing them with tin ones until he's a wholly artificial man. He also eventually discovers that his previous body parts have been joined with meat glue with another tin man's former body parts to make a new personality traits of both. Yes, really. And, you know, Craig, that's something Wolf himself does. I actually think that there's some of that in Jonas. Anyway, mm-hmm. uh, Marcus goes on. He says, a test case for me for Wolf is the short story, Unrequited Love. The treatment of the artificial dogs and girls in that story seems aimed to highlight how you cannot make something that looks and acts human without it beginning to be human and to have human needs. There's a lot more happening here that could undercut my point, but I'm sticking for that now. Well, you're a man after my own heart, Marco. <laughs> <laughs> I like that though because it 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 has how I kind of feel Wolf goes for these things is that yeah it's more about almost like moral personhood comes before the sort of fact of consciousness or something mm-hmm. like that I mean the idea that how you behave and the fact that you start to have to make human choices that's what makes you a person rather than just the sheer existence of some sort of internal consciousness or something like that. Um, And it fits with a lot of, I think, uh, how Wolf talks about certain religious ideas sometimes. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, especially if you're going to talk about, I mean, I don't want to simplify things too much, but if you're, if you're talking about, you know, faith versus actions and, and Catholic Catholicism or something like that, what someone does may in the long run be more important than what they think about it or something. I don't know. I mean, that's, But I do like the idea that in a writer that Wolf definitely liked, you also already have this thing where where fake people are people first by sort of how they are in the world. And I I like that. I like that a lot. Well, you know, I'm clearly outside the consensus, but I just think Wolf is capable of all kinds of sentience and non-sentience. He spent a lot of time examining the soul and you can't really do that without coming up with a few negative examples. I don't know that Wolf believed the souls of animals persist, but I still do know that he believed they deserve dignity. Yeah. Still, you know, I'm grateful to Marcus for the opportunity to reconsider this question. Oh yeah. It's also hard to, anytime you try to pull sort of philosophical points or positions out of a piece of fiction like that, especially if you're talking about what he actually believes rather than what ideas he was playing with at the time, mm-hmm. that gets really difficult and murky. Cause if, if you tried to make everything in Wolf consistent across all the stories and all the books. Yeah. I, not I a good idea. Yeah. Yeah. Marcos has two shorter thoughts about the last episode. He says the first, you forgot a key bloodsucker in the, the new sun, albeit a mysterious one that dang vampire bat that Severian suddenly wakes up to find feeding on him in claw gets mentioned two or three times in the remainder of the book and into Earth of the New Sun, too. It's like the Contessa, a bizarre detail that has an enormous spotlight cast on it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I agree, Marcus, that you just see a path in a wolf story that seems to lead and you don't know where even if it doesn't go anywhere, it does not mean that Wolf didn't intentionally blaze that path. So, yeah. 
kind of like a tangled liana vine that's just <laughs> weaving itself around everything. Yeah. <laughs> oh, those lianas. And then secondly, he says that Dorcas is not really tempting Severian to break a command. I guess that's true. But incest, anyone? Well, you know, Marcus, that's more of a norm than a command. But if your grandmother isn't forbidden fruit, then I'm not sure where you draw the line. Who was it that said the, the command against, was it the French, uh, Claude Lévi-Strauss, is that his name? The uh, anthropologist who was like, the only true thing across all cultures is the taboo against incest? Is he the one that said that, or was there somebody else who had a whole, I can't remember. Is that the raw and the cooked? I, or is, I don't know what I'm thinking right now. It's, it's a little late and I'm getting all my names mixed up. <laughs> who was that Greek historian who said, after examining all the different and contradictory rules among various cultures, the law is all, which is to say, you know, morality, whatever you say it is, is doesn't have a precursor. It just is what it is. Finally, Craig, we got an Apple podcast review. This is from the Stevarkian. It's titled Great Resource, a great resource for those who want to finally, parentheses, feel like they will get to the bottom of Gene Wolfe's mysterious writings. Five stars. That's really awesome. Thanks. Oh, great. The Stevarkian. <laughs> yeah. The parenthetical is perfect yeah. <laughs> because, yeah, I, I feel like I understand. Not, not that I understand less than where we do it. I just, I feel like I've explored different paths and know which ones go in which directions much yeah, further. Yeah. These, yeah. This book always makes you feel like it's just out of your fingertips. If I could just stretch a little mm -hmm. farther. And now, Craig, we are at last at the end of this volume. The place where Wolf is finally going to explain everything. Finally in orient us to what's going on. I don't think he's going to do that. <laughs> I don't think so either. But yeah, it's kind of amazing. We've gotten this far. We're about to finish the yeah, book. Yeah, we, we make a mistake and we just keep making it. So. But what we're going to do too, just to let everybody know, we're not going to jump right to Claw too quickly. We're going to take one episode, kind of look back on all of Shadow with what questions we still have, what things surprised us, what confusions we definitely want to bring to Claw and try to look at Shadow as a single book for just a little bit rather than part of a longer yeah, story. Yeah, definitely. And we'll, we'll see how that goes. All right, let's go. Okay, read it. Chapter 35, Heather. And I guess we should talk about pronunciation too, right? Because you mentioned online that I call, I say Heather and you say Hathor. Yeah, you're better than some people. Some people say Heather. Heather, yeah, Heather seems weird, yeah. Like he's some sort of 80s cheerleader or something like that. <laughs> in, in the great Heather Wars of the 80s, I was a decorated veteran of the Heather Thomas Army, <laughs> of the fall guy, starring the $6 million man, Lee Majors. Opposing us were the slaves of Erebus, the Heather Locklear masses of T.J. <laughs> Hooker, the blonde, tough cop slash receptionist working with William Shatner. So- <laughs> so yeah, Craig, I've noticed that you kind of work in the middle there uh, between Heather and the way I pronounce it, Haythor. Like, uh, hey, Thor, that's a nice hammer you got there. Yeah. 
And neither one of us connect with the possibility that Heather is short for the thorn, which did, have we mentioned that before? I mentioned it all the time. Have, have we talked about that? <laughs> okay, good. I wanted to be sure, but I, I forget sometimes what you and I have talked about and what's actually gotten recorded. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so it, cause that's not Hethorn, Hethor, Heather. Yeah. It's, that's not quite the way we do it either, but yeah, I have no idea what's right. I mean, I don't know. Now I've looked around. I haven't found anything. Have you found the real name Heather? anywhere yeah it's he's one of some angle saxon priests that were killed in a raid of vikings okay means nothing mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just a you're probably looking for him for under a thor e thor or something like oh that. gotcha maybe it's he thor gotcha hmm. we'll still probably just pronounce it differently each time that's fine <laughs> we'll just keep going on <laughs> with what we're doing <laughs> well you know what it's uh if you're going to continue to pronounce it that way i guess you know it's on your conscience craig <laughs> <laughs> so here we are at the end of the first volume. It's been a long, strange trip. But, you know, given that the arc of the story is carefully chosen, yep. it starts at a gate, as you pointed out, it ends at a gate. And as Michael Andre Drizzi notes in his new, you know, Book of the New Sun chapter guide, it starts with Severian killing a man and ends with him accidentally killing a man. And Wolf, too, is the one who points out that it goes to the gate. The very end of the chapter is him insisting on that structural exactly. parallel. Yeah. And given that the titles in this volume are specifically chosen, sometimes ironically, often referring to people who haven't made an appearance yet in the chapter or only appear at the end. Wolf thinks a lot about titles of chapters in the Soldier of the Mist. You know, the, the chapter names are the first words or sentences in the chapter because, you know, ancient books and manuscripts didn't use chapter headings. So Wolf does seem to care about these things. What I'm getting at is that this chapter title, Craig, is somewhat different from the way chapter titles tended to go in this volume. Mm-hmm. The title is named after the guy who walks in at the very beginning of the chapter. Yep. We're not left wondering, you know, what is this chapter title about? And just to remind everybody, we've kind of pointed out before how a lot of times the chapter title, if it names a character, that person either shows up at the end or in some cases, it's all the setting up for that character who doesn't actually show up until the next chapter. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah, he's going to. I'm thinking of like Dorcas. Yeah, well, wait a minute. Doesn't she actually, he falls in the water and he feels her hand. So she does appear in there. He feels her hand. So she's there, but she's not identified neither but yeah but that that part that might be a a good similar thing to i think what we're going to get to yeah i think so Uh, i remember um like the rag shop girl the whole chapter is them having breakfast and then at the very end a severian lays eyes on agia and voila look it's the rag shop girl yep so um yeah what could have wolf called this he could have had a far more interesting chapter title he could have called this the piteous gate that would have been intriguing since the name of the gate mm-hmm. isn't given until we- or The kerfuffle at the gate. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, imagine people wondering about the name of the gate until Claw came out a year later, because we don't even get the name of this gate. But no, Wolf names this chapter Haythor, a guy we already met in chapter 30 among the excruciation fanboys outside the Hall of Justice. But this is the first time we get his name. Right. And uh, we don't know his real name, right? It's an alias, just like Hildegrin is an alias. Agia tells Severian he has a much older one, which frankly could be an alias as well. I mean, assuming Talos and Baldanders and Typhon are examples of older style names before people began being named after Catholic saints. And, you know, 
then perhaps the name Agia knows is also, you know, myth related. Something that starts with an H. I don't know. Maybe Helios, something like that. Helios. Ah, oh, there you go. Obsessed with his consort Thea, alternate spelling. And her purple eyes and hands like doves. That would be cool. Make up your own story, folks. So we're not going to be told anything explicitly. Hey, maybe it's head of the day. Oh, head of the day would be nice. Yeah. We had also thrown around the possibility of it being something Korean, just because he's a sailor as well, like we're going to find out in the antechamber in the next book. But we don't know what that would be. <laughs> I have no idea. As we do, Craig, let's recap the timeline. Okay. We don't know Severian's age when he was elevated to journeyman. I, I think, what, 19 or 20 is credible. He was banished for helping Thecla commit suicide on the 13th day after his elevation. Let's pretend that that was Sunday. That means he was elevated on the Monday after last. He leaves on Sunday, the afternoon, and he walks into the early Monday morning of the next day until he shared a bed with Baldanders. He has breakfast with Talos and Baldanders, meets Agia and Agalus, unwittingly gets the claw of the conciliator, goes to the botanic garden, meets his grandfather and his resurrected grandmother, Dorcas, reconnects with Hildegrin, gets a poisonous avern, eats at the end of Lost Loves, duels with Agalus, gets killed, resurrects, Agalus panics and murders nine people trying to get away. Probably second degree murder, but there's no reason to get particular in his case. Severian gets taken to the Lazaret in the Hall of Justice because they're going to need a carnifix to execute Agalus now. That's the end of Monday, the day after he was banished. So next day, Tuesday, Severian wakes up in the Lazarus, mostly healed from his mortal wounds. He inspects the platform where he'll behead Agalus. He goes to the cell and interviews Agalus and Agia. He smacks Agia around a bit, and she scribbles something on the floor with an orichok that Severian gave her. He goes back to the Hall of Justice and encounters Haythor for the first time. He and Dorcas, his Mimaw, have sex. <laughs> That's Tuesday. Well done, but you didn't mention the baboon in the Lazarus, so... <laughs> Sorry about that one. And then Father Ineri makes an appearance as a baboon. On Wednesday, he executes Agalus. He hears Agia scream, which is when she devotes herself to earning her place in the ranks of the craziest, most dangerous ex-girlfriends in literary history. <laughs> and emphasis on the crazy, because she does rescue him at least twice. I'm just saying. It's like Carrie Fisher with John Belushi and the Blues Brothers. <laughs> then he and Dorcas see the religious vision of the burning Pellerines Cathedral, which will not be explained until next volume. Then they do a walk-on to a play and perform where Talos has set up waiting for their arrival. He knew Severian was coming either that night or the next, and he's surprised to learn that he will not be joining their troop because apparently he was under the impression that Severian would be joining them to go to House Absolute. And that's all for Wednesday. So now it's Thursday morning, 17 days since he was elevated, fourth day of his banishment. From chapters one to 14, it probably covers 18 months at most. The next 20 chapters happen in four days. This is Thursday morning. He wakes up from a strange, real-feeling dream where Malrubius and Triskali gave him an impromptu test. He has some breakfast with Dorcas and Jalinta, whom Severian has not recognized as the waitress who served him his breakfast with Talos and Baldanders three days ago. 
And now, Haythor walks up to the group. It's entirely probable by now that Agia has enlisted Haythor as her ally. Right. Somehow I get the feeling Haythor was going to dog Severian around the country anyway. But also, Haythor was always creeping around Agia, and now she's gone to him promising whatever disgusting things he wants if he'll help her. So, Severia starts. One thing I've always wondered is whether or not when he first sees her, Heather was there because she had already asked him to do her some favor, like already. he's Is he supposed to be dogging Severian, like you said, or was he just following around because he wanted to be near Asia at that point? And I don't know. I don't have a good, a good sense. One thing I was trying to do in reading it this time was – you know, when we see him before, he's all sort of asking Severian for punishment, right? For can you can you punish the woman who took her to me? And that idea never comes up again. But it does make me think, okay, well, what's happened in between then? Severian's killed Agilus. So one reason maybe why he now kind of still appreciates him is maybe if Heather does feel in some way that Asia is his paracoida, did he feel like Severian did what he asked him to do? Yeah. You know, who will punish these people? And and he did. And so maybe there's something weird about Heather where he's kind of wanting to say thanks to Severian yeah. because of that. I don't know. There's, but there's a whole lot of questions about Heather's motivations to me at, at all these spaces, just because we don't know exactly when, what has happened in the background. Well, I kind of touched on this in the Shadow of the Torturer chapter when Severian executes Agalus. The little intellectual guy with the lumpy head is nowhere to be seen at the execution. And and Agia says that yeah. she is making use of his silver. And we know know he had silver on him, the intellectual, because he gave Severian an Asimi. So I kind of have a theory that Haythor killed the little guy and is funding all of Agia's uh, escapades with the money that he stole from him. Mm. I wonder if that means, too, that Heather is the one who killed the person outside the breakfast. Oh, no. I'm sure that that's Agia and Agulus. With the Lambrican, somehow, I mean, they've got rags everywhere. I'm sure the Lambrican certainly worked for that. I just didn't know if that was some other way to talk about some weird creature that wrapped around his neck, like one of the notules or something. But they they kill a different way, right? They don't, they don't strangle you. They do something else. So Severian starts. I do not know why it should be humiliating to receive a stranger while sitting on the ground, but it is so. So Dorcas and Jolenta and Severian, even Baldanders, stand as he approaches. He calls him a gray figure, which differentiates him from Severian in black and blonde, fair-skinned Dorcas. Only Talos remains seated. He's not on the ground. He's in a chair. Still... It is interesting. If Hathor were the only one standing, then he would be in the position of power in the group, or depending on how things played out, an excluded outsider. Now that everyone else is standing, remaining seated implies a position of power. And that power could, it could Mm -hmm. be knowledge, knowledge of the role that Hathor plays, or knowledge that causes him to rightfully or mistakenly dismiss 
Hathor. Yeah, and Talos doesn't, as we're going to see, he doesn't really seem to have any notion of what Hether is or why he's there. And in fact, some of the few times he seems to not question, but just he's he got a phrase in there of like, he just gave me a look that made him say, like, he's your problem. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, exactly. Dismissive sure. of it. Yeah. Whereas usually Talos is so insightful and kind of has that weird sense of knowing why people are doing what they're doing, but not with Hether. Right. Hathor, again, he's described as a gray figure. This could mean something symbolically or in a Jungian way. He's Gandalf. Yeah. Or, I mean, it could mean, you know, what it means symbolically probably depends on what he means in the plot. You know, like words, which are also symbols, context is Mm -hmm. all. So I don't know, since I don't know what the heck is going on with Hathor. Even though everyone stands at his arrival, Severian says... Yet a less impressive figure would have been difficult to imagine. <laughs> he's, <laughs> he's short. His clothes are too large for him, and that makes him seem even smaller. Do you remember David Burns of the Talking Heads? He had a giant suit he'd wear. Yep. It was his mm-hmm. big suit, and he'd do a big suit dance. Yep. And the point was to make his head look smaller. And it was sort of a message against overthinking things, I think, trying to apply meaning where there was none. Stop making sense. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Hathor's clothes make him look even smaller than he was. I suppose these are the clothes that he traded his old-fashioned sailor's uniform for, the the uniform that was old-timey and authentic, but in good modern condition. Yeah. Also, just a small thing on this clothes, if Aji and Agilis worked in a costume shop, why could they not find something better for Heather? (laughs) You know, at this point, but maybe, who knows, in in all the the drama and passion of Agilis being killed, maybe she didn't have time to get him something. Yeah, she gets it. One of the things I'm going to make you look more presentable to hang around with. Ah, don't worry about it. He has a weak chin, a chin where your face just merges into your neck and he's unshaven, stubbly. He's wearing a greasy cap. It's not described, but when he takes it off out of respect for the ladies, I guess, we can see that he's balding on top. Severian says the hair had retreated to either side to leave a single wavering line like the crest of an old and dirty Bergano. A, a Bergano or a Bergenot or a Bergenet is a Renaissance knight helmet that has a crest on top, like a metal mohawk. So I'm guessing that the hair is bald on top in a way that has left a thin line of hair at the very top in the middle. That's what I guess. Which is weird. An odd way to describe someone balding because that's that's not normal male pattern baldness. <laughs> yeah, no, it's know. not. But it's you may have got a hit of radiation on that ship while he was out there in the stars. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But it does give. I mean, to me, the especially kind of in the eighties, like to have for somebody to have a mohawk does give them a bit of a sort of punker, rebellious mm-hmm. kind of yeah. something. And it's almost like maybe there was something about that in his past. Right. That, you know, I just thinking, especially of this being done in the eighties to describe anyone with the Mohawk, it would be, I think much more intentionally iconic of that punk right. rebellious mm. kind of thing. Well, it takes a very, in a minute to remember where he's seen him before. We, we read most of what Hathor says at this point back in chapter 30, but you know, gosh, darn it. It's so darn good, Craig. <laughs> we should read it again. And <laughs> let's talk about some other points in it as well. And he starts with addressing everybody as lords, oh lords and mistresses of creation, silken-capped, silken-haired women, and man-commanding empires and the armies of Phoban of our photosphere. 
tower strong as stone is strong, strong as the oak that puts forth leaves new after the fire. And my master, dark master, death's victory, viceroy over the night. Silken cap, silken haired women, that's Dorcas and Jalinta. Man commanding empires and armies of the foemen in our photosphere, that's Talos, who played the Autark the night before. Tower strong as stone is strong, that's Baldanders. And my master, dark master, death's victory, viscery over the night, that's Severian. And it's this starts off a question that even they deal with of like, okay, he saw us in the play, I guess, and maybe he has a problem telling you know, fiction from fact. And, but I think we'll talk about it, but I think something else is going on. We kind of touch on this when we talk about it being kind of Shakespearean. He's got a meter when he, Mm -hmm. when he talks, it's, is, is that, is that Mm -hmm. pentameter or something like that? I don't know that's, it's not really set, but you can see that it it could be put to music, right? Severian calls it uh, a gobbling sing song with a fine spray of spittle flying through the gaps in his teeth. (laughs) Which I didn't try to do because I don't want to mess up my microphone. <laughs> you know, he says, long I signed on the silver-sailed ships, the hundred-masted whose masts reach out to touch the stars, I floating among their shining jibs with Pleiades burning beyond the top royal spar. Yeah, and there's little things like, I mean, there's alliteration that goes on at times. I mean, it, it's mm-hmm. not scripted, but it gives Heather this weird, very literate, sense and and almost a sort of prophetic kind of speaking is what it sounds but yeah like when you've got uh my master dark master death's victory viceroy i mean there's the d and the v there there's the you know i signed on the silver sailed ships all the s's i mean it's little stuff and it's not like it's super hard to do or something but it's just way more crafted and i will say i did try to scan it and try to figure out if there was a sort of regular meter and there's not that i can find that's perfectly organized you can tell that there is a a certain rhyme at sometimes or oh yeah oh yeah and it doesn't have to be perfectly done like a lot of shakespeare stuff when the common people talk it'll look like it's written in prose and it's not broken by line Mm -hmm. but but you still break it up and more important characters do speak in iambic pentameter and it doesn't have the rhyming thing but it still has the Mm -hmm. rhythm of the not artificial, but but of poetic speech. And you get a sense of that here. Like, I can't actually tell you what the actual rhythm is. It's not something that's totally regular, but it's written in a way that, I don't know, maybe more like a kind of Whitman type of line, like thinking of someone mm, more like yeah. prophetic. It's kind of like Whitman has this certain rhythm to his stuff that's not repeated in the way like Shakespeare would do. But it definitely has that feeling of of these long sort of lines that that trail these images out way far beyond what would be necessary to communicate. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's go ahead and give his speech again because we I don't think we've ever done the whole thing all the way through. So. Okay. All right. So long I signed onto the silver sailed ships, the hundred masted whose masts reached out to touch the st- st- stars. I floating among their shining jibs. With the Pleiades burning beyond the top royal sp- sp- spat, but never have I seen aught like you. <laughs> Hether am I, come to serve you, to scrape the mud from your cloak, wet the great sword, c- 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 carry the basket with the eyes of your victims looking up at me, master, eyes like the dead moons of Vertandi when the sun has gone out. When the sun has g- gone out, where are they then, the bright players? 
How long will the torches burn? The freezing hands grope toward them, but the torch bowls are colder than any ice, colder than the moons of Verktandi, colder than the dead eyes. Where is the strength then that beats the lake to foam? Where is the empire? Where are the armies of the sun, long-lanced and golden-bannered? Where are the silken-haired women we loved only l- last night? So Talos is picking up on the beginning and the end of all this, and he deduces correctly, I think, that Hathor saw the play the night before. He says, oh, you were in our audience, I take it. I can well sympathize with your desire to see the performance again, but we won't be able to oblige you until evening, and by then we hope to be some distance from here. <laughs> All right, so let's see. The eyes, uh, like the dead moons of Fertandi, um, Fertandi is Mars in this world. Skull is Venus. Mars has two small moons. So that's the eyes, like the moons of Vertandi. The eyes of Deimos and Phoebus. Yes, exactly. Vertandi, Erda, Skald. These are the Norns of Norse mythology. And they were a lot like, but not identical to, the Moirai and the Parkai of Greek and Roman mythology. Skald means future, probably. And Vertandi is the present. But Erda, Earth, or weird, is not the past, at least not directly. It means fate. And when you think of it, given their jobs, there's not a lot of heavy lifting for the past to do. The idea of returning to the past or having alternate futures is actually a recent idea in human storytelling. The past might invade the present. Ancestors might assist or return, but the present didn't invade the past. Um, Let's see. The Pleiades is a constellation of seven stars over the head of the constellation Taurus. The constellations Orion and Taurus, they face off each other in the sky. And sometimes the Pleiades are referred to as Orion's net. And Craig, in A Borrowed Man, you know how I am. When those seven emeralds show up, my first thought went to the Pleiades. <laughs> that part where Hathor moans the, the sun has gone out. We were speculating that Hathor is a version of Severian, twisted in body, broken in mind. Perhaps the, his version opted not to bring the new sun. But primarily here, I acknowledge Hathor's just sucking up to everyone. Is that what I was wondering if you found something different in all the the stars and the planets that he brings up? Like, is there um, since he's bringing some up? Do you, do you have any have any Hamlet's mill magic to work on this one? <laughs> I wish. Yeah. Um, uh, well, there's five of them. So Hyades rising in the eastern horizon and followed by Orion, who would be Hathor. Other than that, I don't know. The The wall of Nessus is the circumpolar region. It's the, the If you were to look up in the sky, you have a time-lapse camera, you would see the stars form a circle, and some of those stars would never set below the horizon. That's the circumpolar region. Citadel, same thing. I, I know where we are in the sky, but I don't know what or whether Wolf is going for anything. One thing that gets me is how he's talking about Severian because it is, yeah, he's trying to sort of butter everybody up and talk about them as if they are these wonderful creatures. But the way he talks about Severian is he says, you know, I've been all over the universe, but I've never seen anyone like you. And he wants to serve him to be the smallest thing, but also to watch him destroy everyone. And in the logic of this passage, he wants to carry his basket. Yeah. 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 His basket with the, with the eyes, like, like victory tokens. But then, 
there's all kinds of stuff about light and how you pull somebody's ability to see, right? When you've got their eyes, you can't, they can't see anymore. Mm-hmm. And the way he's talking about Severian, I think, is that Severian is the sign that the sun has gone out. So he's not necessarily talking about Severian as the sun right here, because in fact, later on, he says, where is the empire? Where are the armies of the sun? It's almost like they're not here anymore. All I see now is this image of death before me. And so he doesn't have any sort of sense of Severian as, you know, the one who's going to bring the new sun or anything. There's none of that kind of prophecy. It's still here talking about Severian as the executioner. He blocks the sun forever. Right. And just again, that he does ask that question, Athena, where are the armies of the sun? It's almost like he either Heather can't see them or he doesn't for all of whatever his other weird, insane intuition or prophetic something that he sounds like he doesn't necessarily get anything to him. Severian is this image of destruction. But he seems to like him for it. So that's where I kind of get back to the thing of maybe that's a weird way of appreciating killing Agilus. Um, You know, I don't know. But it does seem like he's there's a part of him here which is very legitimately saying, I want to serve you somehow. I don't know. Or it could just be him doing what Asia told him and, you know, go serve him. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. He's, I mean, he's, he is clearly on mission and we'll point that out. Oh, yeah. But I definitely feel like there is a bit of a sense here where even to me, at least, even if he is at this point out to get Severian, there, something about that just strikes me as sincere, like his praise for Mm -hmm. Severian. Oh, yeah. 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 No, he's a, he's in love (laughs) with Severian. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Severian finally cues after a bit to what any first time reader did as soon as Hathor started speaking. This is the guy that he met outside the prison with the fanboys. He's not paying attention to Talos though. He's talking to Severian, occasionally looking at Bald Anderson Dorcas. But I guess he starts talking to Dorcas. He says, he hurt you, didn't he? Writhing, writhing, I saw you with the blood running. Red is Pentecost. Whoa, 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 what honor for you. You serve him too, and your calling is higher than mine. Now, Craig, I was thrown by the term red as Pentecost. Pentecost is a Christian holiday, but it was a Jewish holiday before that. It was the Feast of Weeks. It took place seven weeks, one day after the Feast of Unleavened Bread on the Passover, which is the event that Jesus and the disciples were celebrating on the Last Supper before he was arrested and crucified. So if you're struggling with the math, seven weeks and one day is 50 days, and Pentecost means 50. So for Christians, Pentecost is the day after Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension that his followers were celebrating together. Remember, they were all Jews. And the Holy Spirit descends on them, and everyone starts praising God, and everyone heard everyone else talking in their own native language. Now, I knew that. If you've heard the Christian denomination Pentecostals, that's what the name refers to. But red is Pentecost. That I did not know. It turns out, as a lot of you already know, that for Western Catholic and Episcopal churches and probably others, red is the color of Pentecost. Pastors and choirs will wear red robes. The auditorium is draped in red banners and tablecloths. There are red flowers, red, red, red. So this is another Christian tradition surviving intact in the Commonwealth at the end of the world, maybe. Yeah, it might not be surviving. It could also be that Heather is just old enough 
or having come from a time when there still was real Christianity. That's kind of how I took that part of it. Mm. That any time that just like the the Korean guy's name is still from a time far in the past. Wow. Yeah. But also the other thing about Reddit Pentecost, which is cool because I did not know that, not being Catholic. I was I'm just reading up on certain things about Pentecost and there's a lot of images, especially sort of medieval images where the Holy Spirit's shown as a light coming down on the people almost a lot of times like the sun coming out of the sky descending even if it's behind like the dove which is often the symbol too but there's still this strong sense of light and you get a red sun and it's still the red sun the red light of pentecost so it could still be like the sun of pentecost coming down yeah just translated into earth but no i still think that because he mentions pentecost by name that this to me, and even though it's not capitalized, which maybe would have been a stronger thing, but this to me feels like an intentional thing where Wolf meant real Pentecost and not substituting a common name for something that's actually very different. So I, that's why I was thinking this is a sign that Heather is super old and all has gotten into that weird timey wiminess and being far away from his time. We've talked about this in the past, though. We have these other things like uh, Pascal candles. Uh, and also the, the prayer that Severian mentions saying for the amount of time it took him to get out of the water or, or whatever. But uh, yeah, maybe. I don't know. Yeah. And it's it, the only reason it's just because, like you said, red is Pentecost. That leads to a specific understanding of that celebration now and not just any holiday or ritual or something. Yeah, he could be very, very old. And I'd, yeah. I'd feel better about that if it actually was capitalized. But I don't know. That's splitting hairs. And- all guessing anyway. But yeah, so something about Dorcas then, right. you know, what honor for you? Because he's talking about when she was wounded or killed in the, tortured in the play. And then he's like, what honor for you to have undergone that? You serve him too, and your calling is higher than mine. And when he says that, I wonder if what he's saying is higher is being tortured by him or eventually what her role is. is, that what it is? So it's not something about Dorcas consort or something like that. Oh, yeah, no, no. I think it's because his his client as being, you know, the highest way to serve the, the great dealer of death. Yeah. Yeah. That's messed up. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Dorcas is just bewildered by this last bit and she just shakes her head and looks away. <laughs> she's just too nice to say what she's thinking. Baldanders just stares. And Batalos, you know, he says, surely you understand that what you saw was a theatrical performance. (laughs) (laughs) And then he starts talking about, oh, yeah, I uh, understand more than you think. I, the old captain, the old lieutenant, the old cook in his old kitchen, cooking soup, cooking broth for the dying pets. My master is real, but where are your armies? real and where are your empires shall false blood run from a true wound where's your strength when the blood is gone where's the luster the silken hair i will catch it in a cup of glass i the old captain the old limping ship with its crew black against the silver sails and the coal sack behind it (laughs) okay most of this, I have no idea what's going on. The dying pets, okay, I get that because you know they keep these pets that get loose from the sails in these bins and all. The old limping ship, yeah, okay, the their ship was somehow disabled out between the stars for a long time, right? Mm-hmm. But false blood running from a true wound, I, I don't know. I don't know. I have an idea what he's getting at. 
Well, there's one thing about this passage that I have to guess at, and I don't know that this is true, but it makes me wonder. So he calls himself here the captain, right? I, the old captain. Oh, and the old lieutenant. (laughs) The old lieutenant and the old cook. But one thing that makes me think is that Zadkiel plays a whole bunch of different roles on his ship, right? Mm. So- Oh no. Are you saying he's Zadkiel? Now I'm suggesting that he is Zadkiel. <laughs> no, just because uh, when in Earth of the New Sun, Captain is precisely what you call the ship, what you call the thing. Now, I don't have any other proof and I don't know quite what it would mean to say that Heather is Zadkiel. But I don't know, maybe he's touched with something and maybe this is... <sighs> Yeah, I don't know. That just opens up all kinds of possibilities for him to call himself the captain, which he does at multiple times throughout the series as well. So that's one thing. And the stevedore and the... Right, yeah. Uh, you know, he has every job on this. Every job. He's the cook. He's the, the captain, the old lieutenant, the old cook. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. And there's something about Zadkiel that is like saying, you know, I am I am the entirety of the ship. I am both the leader and the, the things that lead and the things that do all... All the the work along the way. It's almost like Zadkiel is this weird legion figure and sort of microcosm, macrocosm in one person. And that's just kind of what Heather describes here. And again, just from the fact that in Earth, Wolf specifically has Severian call him the captain over and over again. And this is where we also get a captain that, I don't know, I again, I don't know what that would mean. I don't know how to trace that back, but that's something I got to think about now. There's also something about what Heather says here that kind of still goes with the Zadkiel thing. The fact that all the ways that he's talking about doing, he's like, I can put the baby bird back in the egg and I can fold the moth's wings and put it back in the cocoon. That it's sort of like he can pack up even in reverse time, even by going back in history. And Zadkiel can kind of give birth to himself, right? Something along those lines. So there is a little bit of that. Yeah. And the Hyros go backwards in time, right? They travel backwards. Yeah. Yeah. That is a thread. That's an important thread. I have to remind you that Baldander's name comes from God Proteus, who is a shape changer, constantly changing from one form to another, to another, to another. Yeah. And Zadkiel is like that. Yep. And I don't know where to go with that. Yeah. <laughs> Other than that, it's a theme. You know, if you ever hear a long sympathy and, oh, wait, I heard that theme before. I guess that's supposed to mean something. I don't know what it means. Yeah. But yeah. And then it's the other thing about this is he does specifically bring up that he knows the difference between real and fake, right? It's kind of like in one way he's responding to Talos, like, real, I, my master's real. You know, I know that Severian here is really a torture or whatever. But that's another point where maybe he's kind of suggesting, I know what's real and not, and something about the play is- Oh yeah. The way to read that might be, my master is real, but where are your armies? Mm-hmm. Real. And where are your empires? He's saying, you're a fake autark. You're not real, but you know, my master, he's a, he's a real- executioner. He's a real torturer. Shall false blood run from a real wound? And maybe he also knows, and he knows, maybe he knows that he's going to execute the world. Yeah. Which is a a real way to look at Severian as death. Yeah. But speaking of capitals, the very first C of Colsack, but yeah, either way, the C is capitalized in all all these versions that I see. Is that right? Is yours? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if that's supposed to denote a a hard, you know, a harder C when he says it, or yeah, it's the only time that happens. Um, but I didn't know it just 
again, is that a name? Is like, but I don't know what that would be. Another ship, you know, the silver sails and the coal stack behind. I don't know. I don't know. It's not something we ever get again. Well, they shouldn't have coal stacks on these modern ships anyway. So that's really weird. The crew black against the silver sails. Yeah. So, so, but it is obvious that Haythor did see the play the night before. That's clear, right? So there's two possibilities. One, like Talos, he knew where Severian would be that night or the next. Two, the more plausible explanation is that he followed Severian and Dorcas to the play. However, this whole thing gets more complicated at the end of the novel. When Talos comes to the Great Keep to visit with Severian, the autarch, he says, Do you recall the morning before we came to the gate? I was handing around receipts from the night before, and we were interrupted. There was a coin left, and it was to go to you. I saved it and meant to give it to you later, but I forgot. And then when you came to the castle. But fair trade ends paid, as they say, and I have it here. Severian says it's exactly like the one that he took from the stone in the mausoleum that he got from Vodalus. And since it is a coin, I don't think... He means a coin of the same denomination. It's fake like the other. It feels lightly greased. Their similarity is worth remarking on. Severian says, quote, they had the same brassy shine and appeared to have been struck in the same die, which is saying something about a false coin. So there's a possibility that both coins came from Vodalus. Talos had Vodalus's cane, after all. But Talos said the coin came from the play, and supposedly Talos doesn't lie about these things, so why is Talos bringing a twin of Severian's personal false coin to him? Why does Talos believe this coin goes to him? And as you know, Craig, there's a consensus earthless theory that Severian himself must have been in the audience that night. And if you believe that Earth of the New Sun explains everything about this novel, I'll remind you that at no time in that book does Severian attend Talos's play or fight with Baldanders in the way presented in the public show or anything else to do with Talos. But since I presented a curiositous Earth that Hathor is some version of Severian or the first Severian, then the obvious option is that Hathor himself used that coin. So now some will ask, wouldn't Hathor have preferred to present this important coin to Severian himself? Only if you believe that Hathor's obsequiousness is not a ruse. And if you believe that he's a dirty old sailor who's working against Severian for the sake of Agia's murderous attempt, then you have to believe that his worship of Severian is fake to some extent. As we pointed out, Hathor is obsessed with Severian before Agulus's execution. So his interest in Severian is somewhat personal. And I don't know where to go with this because I don't understand Talos's involvement in the ongoing manipulation of Severian and who he's working for and why and how it fits in the broader scheme. So if Hathor is involved in a parallel or contradictory manipulation, well, I don't know. But Hathor is there. The coin could have come from him rather than from the first Severian or Malrubius, who mm. we've seen yeah. around. Now, that's interesting. 
Certainly a possibility. And I got to admit with the uh, bit with Talos and the coin at the end, I always assumed that that was just Talos coming to him to say, hey, this whole thing that's happened, it was manipulated from the beginning because see, I have the coin that you said was the symbol that set you off in this whole thing, um, possibly with an eerie or something else. But I, I never could quite trace all the pieces of that back, but that was that was there. I hadn't actually put Heather in that, but now I got to think about that possibility. <laughs> Maybe everybody <laughs> in that audience is someone trying to manipulate Severian in some way. Who knows? Yeah. At this point, Severian assures us of the usefulness of his incorruptible memory. He says, perhaps I should say here that at the time I paid little attention to the Russian stumble of Hathor's words, though my eradicable memory enables me to recreate them on the paper now. Yeah, which many people would say, really, was that a good thing? Because now we have to read Heather. <laughs> I love reading Heather, but I know a lot of people who don't. Oh, really? Oh, people complain about him. Yeah, there's all kinds of things on like on Reddit and comments on the Earth list about like, ah, oh, Heather's crap again that you got to figure out. And yeah. Really? There are worse things than Heather. Which always always struck me as odd because it's like you're reading Wolf, who let's be honest, Wolf stories are like Heather, and all it's Heather is doing is a condensed version of that. Movie. Right now, I'm imagining Wolf in a little greasy cap, right, typing all this thing up. <laughs> <laughs> so Varian wonders if Baldanders understood the words that Hathor was saying, even if he didn't understand their overall meaning. But Dorcas seems repelled by him and didn't listen. He says, "Quote." She turned aside as one turns from the mutterings and cracking bones when an Alzabo savages a carcass. Gosh, how often has Severian seen that? <laughs> yeah, so this is the first time the word Alzabo gets mentioned. And you could see it just as a fun way for Wolf to throw a word out there that's going to become important in the next two books. Uh, we don't see the actual Alzabo for a while, but we do talk about the Alzabo potion that, of course, helps him with Thecla. But yeah, otherwise, it's like a weird thing to put in here because this one you don't know, right? Alzabo, you do not know what that could be. And looking it up isn't going to give you some real understanding about what's going on either. We just know that it savages a carcass and the cracking bones and whatnot. So it's totally disgusting. So what do we make of Dorcas being outright disgusted by Heather? Because nothing that he's doing is or saying is gross by itself, but is it just that she's disgusted by his love and for Severian? Just that she thinks he's this, you know, gothic, horrible guy who follows around in order to watch somebody get killed or something like that? Well, he's thematically, I guess, another Dorcas, right? Isn't she a lot like that? Well, not that, but he's in a twisted evil way and her in a more pure way. I guess that could be. Her her immediate imprinting onto Severians. That could be. That could be. Because I know I always, when I read this again, I'm like, okay, I get the point that we're supposed to see Heather as weird and dirty and disgusting, but nothing that he said that I, I feel like apart from, you know, wanting to carry the eyeballs, I guess was kind of gross. But why would she feel so disgusted? So that's a good point there, maybe. Yeah. I was just trying to think, like, does she recognize that he was one of the hangers on Severian had talked about? I don't know. He has a twisted obsession, a morbid obsession. His teeth are broken. I mean, they're broken. They're chipped and broken. He's, yeah, he's obviously uh, broken in mind to some extent as well. I mean, he is physically, mentally, spiritually, he's broken. Yeah, why not? It's just talking about this as she was disgusted by him as watching a creature eat somebody's bones. Yeah. So it's extreme. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Jalinta, however, pays no attention to him at all. Everything bores Jalinta. Nothing rises to the level. Yeah, I like that 
the way it's phrased is listen to nothing that did not concern herself. That's right. Yeah. But Talos struggles on. You can see for yourself that the young woman is unharmed. It's always a pleasure to speak to someone who has appreciated our performance. But I'm afraid we have work to do. We must pack. If you'll excuse us. Craig, have you ever interjected into a conversation between two other people in order to end it only to become the conversation's focus. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's what happens to Talos here. Yep. Aethor puts his cap back on and he pulls it down until it's almost covering his eyes. And Hathor continues to speak in his sing-song meter. Stowage? There's no one better for it than I. The old supercargo, the old chandler and steward, the old st stevedore. Who else shall put the colonels back on the cob, fit the fled fledging into the egg again? Who shall fold the solemn-winged moth with wings like stunzels into the broken cocoon left hanging like a sarcophagus? And for the love of the master, I'll do it. For the sake of the master, I'll do it. And f f f follow anywhere he goes." A stunsel is a stud sail. He's saying that he can fold a moth's wings back into the cocoon like folding a stud sail back into storage. That he has real abilities to pack everything in the most efficient way. He's, after all, the old stevedore, the old chandler, the steward, <laughs> the supercargo. A supercargo, by the way, is if you, if you load something onto a ship, a lot of times they'll assign somebody to watch whatever it is you've been uh, you're, you're shipping on so that you can protect the owner's interests. That's a supercargo. So he's doing everything on this ship. Now it's right around this point, especially the more he says master that I remember thinking for the first time, he's kind of like Gollum yeah. <laughs> just because he's, he's hanging on. He's, he's this weird, small creature of a man who talks in weird ways and wants to, you know, is doing anything he can just to hang out yeah. be close to him. My precious. Uh, yeah, I know. I mean, we don't know what the ring is, but he's certainly. It's a claw. <laughs> being, oh, yeah. Well, yeah, in, in one way or another. Um, but for Heather, maybe it's not so much the claw as it is. The sword. Or, or something. I don't uh, know, yeah, unless yeah. there's a different person or unless there's a different way to look at it. But mm -hmm. I, ever since I felt that, I always get just a little bit of a Gollum vibe. I mean, he'll definitely do all these things for the love of Severian. For the love of Severian. That's what they should have called this chapter. Severian just nods. Whatever. Baldanders picks up on the references to packing and starts doing that. And Hathor, quote, vaulted up with unexpected agility to fold the set for the Inquisitor's chamber and reel in the projector wires. It's interesting that he starts with the Inquisitor's chamber, given that, you know, he's a Carnifex fanboy. So Talos looks at Severian like, Okay, you can keep him, but you're going to have to feed him and walk him every day, just like I do with Baldanders. <laughs> Severian explains that there's a lot of people like Haythor that are obsessed with watching torture and, quote, want to associate with torturers just as a normal man would want to be around Dorcas and Jolenta. So it's a sexual thing, he's saying. For Talos, that explains it a bit. Haythor offering to work out of pure love for Severian's wonderfulness. He says, yeah, I wondered, one can imagine an ideal servant who serves out of pure love for his master, just as one can an ideal rustic who remains a ditcher from the love of nature or an ideal fricatrice who spreads her legs a dozen times a night 
for the love of copulation, but one never encounters these fabulous creatures in reality. <laughs> a fricatrice, of course, is a prostitute. Which is a fun way of Talus kind of saying, you know, he's not real. <laughs> like something about him is fake. <laughs> it's, it's a kind of funny way of saying, yeah. It should be yeah. suspicious, yeah. Talus himself serves Baldanders just as he does because he's designed to do so. Exactly. He's aware of this, yep. but even he, it seems knows he doesn't do it out of love for Baldanders. So in a little over an hour, the theater is entirely packed up into a huge cart that is itself actually made up of the parts of the stage it is carrying. Very efficient. In addition to pulling the cart, Baldanders carries some elements on his back. So they all start walking. Talos in the lead, followed by Dorcas, Jolenta, and Severian in a group. Hathor behind them. Baldanders is about 100 steps behind them or that is 100 feet, I think this usually means. Dorcas observes that Haythor following them is like when she followed Severian and Agia. Well, there you go. We were just talking about that. Agia couldn't make her go away, and finally Severian made her stop trying. Severian asks why she followed and couldn't be deterred. And she says, you're the only people I knew. I was more afraid of being alone than I was of Agia. And now we get a really interesting conversation. Severian says, then you were afraid of Agia. Yes, very much. I still am. But I don't know where I've been, but I think I've been alone wherever it was for a long time. I didn't want to do that anymore. You won't understand this or like it, but yes. If you had hated me as much as Agia did, I would have followed you anyway. I don't think Agia hated you. And I don't know if Severian is this dense or if he thinks he's trying to be, be polite. Yeah, just I'll make you feel better. But I, I think the point of that is that she's saying, look, even though I like being with you now, especially back at the time, even if you were the worst person in the world, I would have loved you. But it, so it's kind of like her saying, my devotion to you isn't necessarily love. <laughs> you know, it's just that I've, you know, you, you said imprinting before and it's it's kind of like that that she's like, you were all I had in the world and I didn't want to be alone. And that's why, you know, it's almost kind of like her saying too, you know, maybe you're not that great. <laughs> and eventually she's going to come to the realization that, yeah, she probably shouldn't be with him. Severian totally misses the important point there, but yeah. Also, is this a hint that Hathor also spent a long time alone out there between the stars? Mm, could be. And that explains a lot why he's willing to do so much and why losing his doll would be so important to him. You know, any sort of separation would be just utterly traumatic. Imagine him drifting off and them, oh, we're taking off with your doll. Yay. <laughs> no. <laughs> but also we were talking about that doll being kind of an AI. Maybe that's why he was drifting. If they ran off with the navigation system, and the the brains of the ship. No wonder who who knows how long he might have drifted out there. Mm. Yeah, and we know that time does odd things. So maybe it could have been eons. Who knows? Yeah. Well, anyway, Severian says, "I don't think she hates you." And writer Severian describes Dorcas's face in a way that is supposed to just seeing it in the water at the bottom of Lake of Birds. I can see that piquant face now as well as if it were reflected in the quiet well of vermilion ink. You know, it's just like a face peering up at you in dark waters. Piquant means charming. The face was perhaps a trifle pinched and pale, 
too childlike for great beauty, but the eyes were bits of azure firmament in some hidden world waiting for man. They could have vied with Jalinta's own. And like I mentioned before, pinched means, you know, thin from not eating enough or facing hardship or being old. Elderly, thin women are often said to have pinched faces because they lack, you know, the baby fat of youth. And it's kind of, to me, descriptions like this that I, I think make Severian definitely come across as uh, cold and that his attitude towards women is just messed up somehow. Because this is, that whole description just reads as incredibly self-centered and unsympathetic. Like the fact that even when he says pinched and whatnot, he's like, but she was still beautiful. And so much that she was waiting for me to come into, you know, or waiting for man, waiting that, that she was some kind of, you know, good thing for, for me to find or use or something like that. It just, it's, it just reads so very cold and sort of even the idea that, you know, yeah, her face lying there dead in the water was a thing of beauty. You know, I mean, it's sort of romanticizing something, but at the same time, it just, none of it treats Dorcas as a person. But it's also a hint that Dorcas was dead until very recently. Right. That bit about the eyes being the azure firmament of some hidden world waiting for man. That could, that could mean death or the afterlife. Right, right. The literal truth of that statement is that what he's describing is what she was when she was a corpse, right? That, that she was that at that point. She wasn't a person anymore. But anyway, Severian is an idiot and Dorcas corrects him. She says, she hated me. She hates me more now. Do you remember how dazed you were after the fight? You never looked back when I led you away. I did. And I saw her face. Dorcas saw a lot of faces that night. Remember that she said that when the Avern opened, it had a face. And if poison had a face, then that was it. I don't think we noted the connection between that and Robert Gray's I, Claudius, the line in the first chapter where Severian says that he backed into the throne has a direct match in I, Claudius. And also Caesar Augustus's wife, Livia, Claudius's grandmother in the novel, is a poisoner. And Claudius at one time reflects on a memory of seeing an old engraving of a woman and the inscription, the face of poison. And he said it was a duplicate for Livia. And personally, I think that is the difference between Wolf and Graves right there. Graves treats that as some kind of remarkable coincidence, the universe of metaphor converging with reality. I don't believe Wolf wrote like that. I think if he wrote the scene, we would be expected to discern some kind of rational explanation for why Livia's face was in that engraving. Right. He's going to say it's how Mark Aramini will talk about how everything in Wolf is symbolic, but Wolf's symbols aren't just sort of meaningful symbols. Uh, they're actually wound up with the world of whatever story is being told. I always think of them, a good word for it is like a substantive symbol that, yeah, they do have that sort of meaningful level, but they're also tied into what's actually going on in that world. So they work in both ways at once. Yeah. yeah. And that's why we spin these theories because Wolf demands it. This sets us up for everything that Eji is going to do in the next couple books, because she hated him so much that she decided to devote the rest of her life to revenge. <laughs> so they're walking, and Jalinta is complaining to Talos that she has to walk. The modifications he's made to her make it difficult to do that. Remember, Severian has remarked on how awkward she is when she walks, even though she's beautiful when she's just standing. Baldanders in the back says... I will carry you. 
And Jalinta is insulted by that. She says, you mean on top of the junk on the cart? When I say I want to ride, I don't mean as you seem to think, like a fool at a flogging. My, Jalinta, three days ago, you were a skinny, beat-up, starving waitress. How quickly you've to the manor born. Although I think that's intentional, right? I think that there's something so over the top about how much he's painting Jalinta now as this selfish creature, whereas before, when she was the waitress, she was worried about leaving. Like, she didn't know if she could or whatnot. Mm-hmm. She was hesitant and mild. Where I think, too, that that's supposed to be something about whatever hypnotic something that talus actually changed her personality too and that that i think it's something about the kind of beauty that she has is also supposed to be this selfish aloof kind of thing Uh, at least that's the way i take it because otherwise it's just it it's so over the top in this chapter that it just kind of seems like it's it's sort of insulting in some ways like it's easy to read this and be like wow wolf thinks that pretty women are very caught up in themselves. But I don't think it's that. I think it's that something we're supposed to see that something about Jalinda has so totally changed that it's it's an artificial change that's happened. And we find out later about all the weird hypnotic stuff that, that like, like they say, that part of her beauty was because she believed herself to be so beautiful. Well, also that bit about being insulted about riding in a cart. Uh, here's something I happen to know from Once Upon a Time, reading every scholarly book on King Arthur that I could get my hands on. <laughs> In medieval times, to be seen riding in the back of a cart in public was a mark of social shame. Criminals would be carried to punishment in a cart. So, Creatien de Troyes, uh, his Lancelot story, The Knight in the Cart, was an ironic picture to have a knight, a nobleman, so degraded that he'd be willing to be pulled in a cart. So that's what Jalinta means when she associates being pulled in a cart to being like a fool at a public flogging. I know that's in Chaucer somewhere too. And uh, for the life of me, I can't remember it. And my Chaucer professor from grad school would be very upset with me right now. <laughs> well, hopefully he's not listening right now. Severian <laughs> so writes, Jalinta was afraid of looking foolish. And then he immediately records his memory that he reflected on how lucky he'd been not to be alone. He assumes that Baldanders obeyed Talus's commands because he was grateful for the companionship. And I suppose the implication is that Jalinta, although part of the group, is alone, and that's why she's afraid to look foolish. I think that's part of it. I also think it's weird that he has this little reflection here right after seeming to totally ignore Dorcas for saying how important it was for her not to be alone. I don't know. <laughs> it just seems kind of dense. Because, yeah, he calls her. He says there, Dorcas, I knew as my friend, more than a lover, a true companion. It's like, well, she also just told you that she would have gone with you even if you weren't such a good companion. So, Right. Yeah, it's a, it's a lucky thing. Yeah. But, you know, Zverian just kind of picks up friends, whoever happens to pay attention to him. He doesn't – he's not really discriminating sort of guy. At this point, Haythor comes up behind Severian and touches his arm. Severian notices at this point that his front teeth are broken. And he says, Master, and Severian says, don't call me that. I'm just a journeyman, and I'll probably never be a master. So Haythor nods humbly and says, Master, where do we go? And he tells him, out the gate. Now, remember that Severian does not intend to follow the group out of the gate. His plan was to go back to Nessus and return the Claw to the Pelerines. He does not know yet, and he won't know until the Claw of the Conciliator that the Pelerines have burned their cathedral and left. Now, Severian explains 
that he told Hethor this because he wanted him to continue to follow Talos, which, you know, it seems unlikely that he'd ever do that. But uh, Severian explains that in actuality, he'd already begun to desire to keep the claw. He's like, yeah, you mentioned Lord of the Ring. He's like Frodo on his quest to destroy the ring in Mordor. He says, quote, the truth was that I was thinking of the preternatural beauty of the claw and how sweet it would be to carry it to Thrax with me instead of retracing my steps to the center of Nessus. So the wall surrounding Nessus is described as appearing, quote, in the distance as the walls of a common fortress must rise before a mouse. They were black as thunderheads. He says they actually touch clouds at the top and held clouds captive at their summit. And I think that's just such a cool phrase, a cool way to talk about it touching the clouds, that the wall was so high that it actually kept clouds in. That had its own atmosphere. As, as prisoners. As prisoners, yeah. They are so tall that he assumes there are few birds that can even fly over it. He lists a few that could. Eagles, possibly wild geese and their allies, the great mountain Teratornis. I don't know what a mountain Teratornis is or how big it is or anything about it. The name means monster bird. The historical Teratornis was about three feet tall and had a wingspan of around 12 feet, just under four meters. In the pictures, they look a lot like condors or vultures, and they lived in a region of the Western United States. They died out 10,000 years ago. Now, Greg, you're asking about Hamlet's Mill. You can find out more about this on the bonus episode with John Crowley. Whether we're talking about the Citadel, like I said, or the walls of Nessus, these are the northern circumpolar region of the sky. This is a peak at the inner structure of the story as a type of new myth that Wolf was building. As such, the events surrounding it are to be found in the night sky. And this, like I said, the circumpolar region is the area of stars that circle around the celestial pole. These stars never rise or set beyond the horizon. They never go into the underworld or beneath the sea. They never die, so to speak. This is the circular citadel and the circular walls of Nessus, eternal. So all these types of birds that he's naming that could fly over the curtain wall, they're all constellations near and around the circumpolar region. The eagle, Aquila, the eagle. The geese, Cygnus, the swan. The Teratornus, the constellation Lyra, which the Romans called the diving vulture. And mythically, these birds and constellations are important because they are the Stymphalian birds of Hercules' labors. And in chapter three of Shadow of the Torturer and in the tale of the student of the sun, we see references to these very same constellations as types of birds as well. That's pretty cool. I'm so glad that I can talk about that now. <laughs> the wall seems to be made of the same black, unsmeltable metal as the walls of the citadel. We get a hint in this chapter that none of the buildings in the citadel are made of brick and stone, unlike the buildings that he's seen here in Nessus. They're all made of black metal because, of course, they're all spaceships ready to launch. And for this reason, Severian finds the wall comforting rather than intimidating. It reminds him of home. And why does it remind him of home? To continue to beat this dead horse? Because they are cosmologically speaking, mythologically speaking, the same place in the sky. <laughs> and there's the one other sort of maybe more mundane reason is that I think we're supposed to 
guess that the wall and the citadel were actually kind of made at the same time because Talos is going to talk here in a second about how all the empty spaces so Nessus could expand and Baldanders is like no and and Talos just kind of dismisses him but then Jonas tells a story too about you know why there's so much space between these things and we can start to put some guesses together but at the very least I think the thing that we're supposed to pick up on is this weird giant wall that's way far away from the citadel was connected to the citadel they were they were part of the same structure and the same materials right same technology Hathor offers to carry Severian's sword. Severian, of course, because he's dense as a stone, doesn't assume Hathor means anything bad, but he's still burned by Agia's plot to steal the sword. And now he knows it has more than sentimental value, so he turns him down. He says, no, not now or ever. And Hathor says, I feel pity for you, Master, seeing you walk with it on your shoulder. It must be very heavy. All right, so this is a good time to talk about Agia and Hathor's plan. In the past, I always saw this as, okay, this is the first time Hether wants to disarm Severian or something. But I didn't connect it to something we're going to talk about soon that is much more immediate. So I always saw this in the past when I've reread it, I always thought, okay, this is the first time we see Hether being sort of somehow you know, working towards something. But I never quite put it together in the way that I think we're going to put it together. Right. But, but... He could just he could just want to steal his sword, right? He could. There's, here's a simple reading of why Agia devotes herself to hunting Severian across the Commonwealth. She recognizes that Severian is carrying on his person an incredible fortune. There's his sword, which Agilus says is worth as much as a villa, and there is the claw. She saves him from the Asians because she doesn't want them to get it. She saves him from Vodalus. Well, that's not so obvious. Maybe she is only acting out of greed. And by the time she seizes control of the Vaudelaire, she's discovered that, you know, he no longer has the claw or the sword, so she lets him go. But, you know, that's still not totally satisfactory. She does seem to hate him personally as well. The other thing, too, there's there's an image when he mentions, I feel bad watching you carry that on your shoulder the whole time, that I can't help but think of Simon from the Stations of the Cross, uh, somebody who is going to take Jesus's burden away. But here it's completely upside down because here it's not an act of mercy. It's actually a devious act to take it away. It does seem like a bad plan for him to just, I'm going to get his sword and then I'm going to run. (laughs) (laughs) But maybe if he could get Severian used to having him carry a sword, maybe there'd be an opportunity. Mm -hmm. Now they come to the gate called Piteous for some reason. It's crowded. And the wall is so big, it makes the people and animals look like mites and like ants carrying little crumbs. He says Talos turns and walks backward and waves at the wall as proudly as if he built it himself. Which, I mean, we know so little about Talos' memory of the past. He might well have built it in some sense, for all we know. But the truth is, I, I doubt that. I think he's just playing tour guide. He says, some of you, I think, have never seen this. Severian, ladies, have you been this near before? And even Jolenta, who has recently lived a day's walk from the gate, has never been this close to it. For Severian, all his life, the wall was just a dark line and the horizon that you could see if you were at the top of the glass-domed mansion tower. 
Talos says that it was built many millennia ago. The city is constantly moving northward, and open areas between the end of Lost Loves and the Wall are areas that Nessus still has room to grow into. That's what Talos believes anyway, but Baldanders contradicts him. And so Talos doubles down. Don't you see, my dear patient, that all these bosquets and pleasant meadows among which we have journeyed this morning will one day be displaced by buildings and streets? A bosquet is a grove or thicket. Wolf defined it as a pleasant thicket. But Baldanders corrects him that those empty spaces were not for allowing space for Nessus to grow. Of course, of course, I'm sure you were there and know all about it, Telus winks at the group and says, Baldanders is older than I and so believes he knows everything, sometimes. So, what do you think? What is the reason for the empty space? Well, we're going to get a story here pretty soon from Jonas, who we'll meet, which is awesome. You think that has to do with the empty space? That's one way that I take it, just because of we get all this stuff in such proximity. Largely because... Well, let's wait on that then, because I want to hear. Okay. Okay. We know that it's against the law, of course, for permanent businesses or houses to be built uh, for within a certain space of the wall. Now, there was a point a long time ago where the Asians invaded the Commonwealth and got all the way to the Citadel. And this event is never portrayed in Earth and the New Sun, but in Citadel of the Autark, the old Autark explains that that's the reason the House Absolute is underground, because once they, quote, laid waste to Nessus. All right, so were the uh, walls of Nessus built to block an invasion of the center of the Commonwealth? Typhon's fortress is far north of Nessus or even Thrax. So we can speculate that there was a time after Typhon that the Asians nearly won. And maybe this was during the reign of Emar, and that's when Father Aniri stepped in to help them turn back the tide. But that doesn't explain why they're prohibiting building against the wall. The Hall of Justice is there, so it seems that only government construction is permitted. If this is a security feature, the security is not against the Asians. It's defense against the people of Nessus. For example, it makes it hard for people to mass against the government on all sides by having a a breaker between those buildings and the wall. And this would imply those walls were built to defend against what was on the inside. But, you know, maybe they had a dual purpose. House Absolute is outside the walls. So it could be an additional defense against the people. But until relatively recently, most of Nessus was farther from the walls. And then, of course, there's Michael Andre Derisi's new theory about the walls that he detailed in his new chapter guide that we talked about in his bonus episode interview. And we're going to talk about that in a minute. Oh, I should throw in my one other, my one pet theory I used to have that I no longer have, but I used to. And... It was always the idea that I loved the possibility that somehow the wall had been built on Earth <laughs> and launched into space, and that the wall was actually the circle of the launching pad, <laughs> and that it was this giant cylinder that stood there, and then somehow it went up. Completely impossible, but I loved the idea. <laughs> I can see that, yeah. <laughs> now Jalinto is starting to complain about the walking. Her talus adjustments make it hard to walk, as we mentioned. They approach the main highway out of town, and she tells Talos that he needs to hire a litter for her because she won't be able to perform if she walks all day. 
And Talos reminds her, he doesn't have any money. But she does, and if she wants to hire a litter, she can. And if she can't perform, her understudy will take up the job. And she says, my understudy? (laughs) (laughs) And he means Dorcas. I'm certain she's eager to try the starring part and that she will do famously. Why do you think I permitted her to join us and share in the proceeds? Less rewriting will be necessary then if we have two women. Talos has apparently been told that Severian will accompany them to the House Absolute, and he has no doubt that he will, regardless of what Severian knows. But Jolinta has not received this message. And she says, Dorcas is not going to be around to be a stupid understudy. Severian notes that she was even more beautiful when she was angry. And she says, she will go with Severian, you fool. Didn't he say this morning he was going to go back to look for... And that's when she remembers that she doesn't really remember what the Pellerines are called. She says, what did you call them? Palesses? <laughs> Palesa is a short fur-trimmed military jacket. The, the way it was worn, it was you know really more of a cape. And Severian says, no, they were named after a different kind of cape. He says, Pellerines. <laughs> now, when Severian interviewed his father, Owen, about his mother, Catherine, he's told that she ran away with some order of monials. And the consensus, I'd say, is that the order of monials was the Pellerines. Monial most commonly means none. But it could be stripped to mean any enclosed orders. Now, as everyone must know by now, I don't believe she ran away from the Pellerines. The Pellerines don't even punish slaves for running away. They just sell them off if they're caught. The idea that Catherine would be arrested and executed for running away from the Pellerines, it just doesn't track for me. But also, I've said, how could Owen not know who the Pellerines are? Agia knows a lot about them. And they were set up with a cathedral nearby Owen's place of business. And and they'd have been the subject of a miracle only a year earlier. But given that Jolinta doesn't know who they are, that argument, I'll say, is weak. Not the rest, though. Yeah, I didn't know if this was like her just saying, missing the word or something like that. But I do like the idea that it's the Pellerines are then not necessarily this universally known religious institution throughout the land that maybe they are just kind of a small little group. And there are others. There could be others. But Ajay knows a lot about them. I'll tell you that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yep. When Jolinta says that Severian and Dorcas are going back to Nessus to find the Pellerines, a guy riding a Merichip or Merichip, I think that's the right pronunciation actually, standing at the side of the road interjects with some new information. Uh, a Merichip, I have reason for this pronunciation. I realize it looks like Merichip, but in fact, this means he's riding a horse-like animal. This word is actually a bit of a creation by Wolf. He doesn't define it in Castle of the Otter. The word Merichippus means ruminant horse, hippus for horse, which is actually a misnaming. They died out about 5 million years ago. They are considered to be a precursor of the modern horse, the first horse to graze. They had one large hoof and two vestigial toes. They looked a bit like a burrow with a much larger head. And a 
burrow-sized animal is probably as close as this creature could reasonably be to the prehistoric Merakippus, because they were three feet tall and three feet long. Of course, none of these horse-named creatures are horses, as we all know. Anyway, the guy on the Merakip hears them talking and says, if you're looking for the Pelerines, you're going my way, out the gate, not towards the city. They left through the gate last night. Severian is really caught up by that. He runs to him and says, are you sure? And he is. He was at an inn last night, and a bunch of people there saw them leaving town and rushed to get their blessings. The slaves were carrying dieses. Again, this is a spelling that I wasn't able to find. Wolf spells it here with one S, but the Italian word diesa has two. Fortunately, Wolf did define diesa for us in this sense. He says, quote, an icon of the heavenly court. So we're left to imagine what it means to the Pelerines. But in this case, the slaves were carrying the icons upside down and the icons were lit with candles. The Pelerines' priestesses had torn their habits. And all this is part of a ritual that Severian doesn't know anything about and we're going to be able to surmise is happening in the next book. The claw has gone missing. The Pelerines have set the fire to their tent cathedral, causing it to rise and wink out just as Dorcas and Severian saw. And then they left town just before the gate closed, or they waited outside the gate and left this morning. We, you know, we don't really know. And the guy, Craig, this is Jonas, Severian's buddy Yay. for the first half of the Claw the Conciliator. Another guy who I love so much and was very sad when he when he eventually leaves in his mysterious way. Yeah, when he just walked away in the middle. But Jonas is the closest thing to a real friend that Severian's going to have. Yeah, it's true. No, I can't I can't think of anyone else who's actually, you know, a companion, a buddy. Right. But also with a sad tragic story of his own, which we we get a tiny glimpse of here. Just a second. He says, "I don't know what was wrong, but believe me, their departure was impressive and unmistakable." That's what the bear said, you know, about the picnickers. And Jonas, of course, is a sailor. And he has a, not a can't, but a, a way of speaking that probably has the same use as a can't. To identify him to other members of his in-group, that is sailors, and to set them apart from other people. And, you know, that is the way sailors talk. I've been normalized to think that they speak, you know, saltier, <laughs> but... <laughs> That's current sailors. <laughs> Some of the comparisons, the jokes that they make later on get a little dirty, I guess. Uh, Jonas's way of talking is called a Wellerism. It's named after the character Sam Weller from Charles Dickens' uh, serialized novel, The Pickwick Papers. And that character is why The Pickwick Papers became a sensation and how Dickens became, you know, Dickens. The way a Wellerism works is that you make a statement, usually some kind of cliche, and attach it to a scene that puts it in a different light, like, uh, simply remarkable, said the teacher when asked his opinion about the new dry erase board, or everyone to his own taste, the old woman said when she kissed her cow, <laughs> or to pick one directly from the Pickwick Papers. Very glad to see you indeed, and hope our acquaintance may be a longin', as the gentleman said to the five-pound note. <laughs> we get our first view of Jonas here. His face which was long and worn and humorous, it split into a wry grin. Later, he says, 
His clothes were worn and travel-stained, though not so dirty like Hathor's. His face had been lined and coarsened by the wind. His voice was flat and neither high nor deep, but possessed of a dry humor. And something about that dry humor is why I think I like him so much, because in some ways, Jonas is in some ways, one of the most laid back characters who is able to kind of step back and get perspective on things and has a certain perspective because of, of his experience as a sailor. But, you know, I, I hadn't realized or I hadn't remembered until this time when we read it that he specifically points out his wry humor <laughs> at this. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that's kind of how I always remembered him. And that's just he doesn't show us. He just tells us. But that's fine. Well, he's. He's the one for unlike Dorcas. Dorcas is with Severian because she feels like she has to be. He doesn't. He's there because he, I guess, he wants to be. He's a, you know, he's a friend. Yeah. Anyway, all this puts Jalenta back behind the eight ball. She figured that she had Talos over a barrel, but now Talos believes his faith in whoever is feeding him information has been justified. Doctor Talos whispers to Jalenta, "I think the Angel of Agony there." And your understudy will remain with us a while longer. <laughs> Severian interjects that Talos was half wrong. As we all know, Severian is going to get separated from the troop for a while. Now, Severian has apparently not decided what he will do with this memoir, and he's still assuming, as he did when he described the dueling in the sanguinary fields, that he's speaking to contemporaries. He says, no doubt you who have perhaps seen the wall many times and perhaps passed often through one or another of its gates will be impatient with me. But before I continue this account of my life, I find I must for my own peace spend a few words on it. So the walls of Nessus are very thick. They are like massive buildings with passageways through them. Severian says that entering the gate was to enter a mine. And he notices that Dorcas, Jalenta, and Hathor are as nervous about entering the gate as he is. He says that as he enters the gate, I could not suppress a shudder. I noticed, too, that everyone around me, except for Dr. Talos and Baldanders, seemed to feel as I did. Dorcas clasped my hand more tightly, and Hathor hung his head. So that bit about Hathor, Craig, and Hathor hung his head. I'm not a prophet or the son of a prophet but I think that's going to come up again for us at some point. I think so. Yeah. Talos and Baldanders aren't worked up about it, but they might be the only ones who've gone through them before. Right. At first, Jalinta hopes Talos will protect her during the passage. She reaches out and touches his arm, but he just marches ahead, pounding the road with Vodalus's walking stick. I'm positive that's Vodalus's walking stick. And what that also does is set up this relationship between Talos and Jalenta, where even in the last little argument that they had, Jalenta is always trying to get Talos to pay attention to her or to see her as something important or whatnot. And Talos just dismisses everything about it. So that, of course, comes to a head later on when they finally have Jalenta leave. But it's right here from the beginning, the way that she wants real attention and that he just sees her as a tool. Right, exactly. So instead, she just holds on to Jonas's stirrup strap. As they walk through, there are intermittently these long windows made of a material that is thicker and clearer than glass. I presume that Severian was used to glass that was not perfectly clear, but had a wavy quality when you look through it. You'll sometimes see this kind of antique glass in old buildings, at least 
I remember seeing it when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. Behind the glass, he can see moving figures. They are apparently in darkness, but he can tell there are men and women and cacogens, alien beings. Wolf has a very clever way of conveying this to a first-time reader. He says that they were, quote, beings to whom the Avern was but what a marigold or a marguerite is to us. <laughs> In other words, people from other planets. That's right. With alien flowers. Yeah. There are also figures of animal men, creatures from the island of Dr. Moreau or Tracking Song. Severian will get a look at some of these when he meets the Autark, but in this case, he sees horned heads watching them with, quote, eyes too wise and mouths that appeared to speak and showed teeth like nails or hooks. And this is one place where I get another Lord of the Rings vibe just because it so feels kind of like Frodo and Sam walking through Kirith Ungol or something mm -hmm. like that when they're in Mordor and, and seeing the orcs and worrying about, you know, being caught by the lookouts and whatnot. Yeah, and Wolf could have spent his career detailing these little stories about people in the the Commonwealth, the Pandors, for example, and what all that was about. But, he, you know, he just moved on. Mm -hmm. When Severian asked Talos what the animal men are, he says, soldiers, the Pandors of the Autark. And Jalenta adds in a whisper, whose perspiration is the gold of his subjects. Because, you know, as you do. A wolf defined Pandors as soldiers of unusual size and strength. Historically, they were Croatians or Hungarians recruited by the Austrian military and were noted for their especial brutality. Jolinta is really afraid, and she's clutching Jonas's thigh against her bosom, which we're going to find out he doesn't mind at all. <laughs> and I wonder when, so before when she grabbed his stirrup strap, Severian mentions, he just says, and to my astonishment, she did that. And I think what he's kind of getting at here is that Jolinta always wants someone's attention or someone to protect her. And that's what, of course, later on, he's going to say, you know, she desperately needed to control people through her beauty or whatnot. And it's almost like he's saying that she is almost unconsciously doing this at a point, like if Talos won't give her attention, she immediately turns to somebody else, right? Baldanders can't, Talos can't, Severian's got Dorcas. So, oh, here's this other guy, you know, we'll just immediately do well, it. Well, she's, she spends all her time separating herself from everyone else, with the exception of Talos, mm -hmm. because she wants to be admired. She can't be the center of attention if she's in a position of need to somebody else. So it comes as kind of a revealing scene that she is so afraid at this point that she is taking shelter in anybody that happens to be there. And by the way, just one point about this that's so cool is that Wolf is doing all these little tiny character ticks that honestly, the first time we read this, we're probably just thinking about the wall and like, yeah, yeah, whatever. Mm -hmm. Let, what is going on? <laughs> and and then trying to figure out how is the story going to end? And it's that's one reason why, you know, coming back and reading it again, you're like, oh, all these little character things that get developed so much more were already right there. It's just, it's good, good writing. Also, in all of this, we have stopped noticing that there is no more reference to Hathor after that scene where they were entering, that everyone was nervous and Hathor hung his head. That's the last physical 
explanation of Tathor being in their presence. Yep. He gets mentioned one more time, but only as a comparison. Right. And it's kind of cool because it's almost like Wolf saying, hey, did you notice who I haven't mentioned lately? <laughs> There's somebody we haven't seen in a while. Yep. yep. Yeah. Talos explains that the Pandors inhabit the wall, quote, like mice. Although it is of immense thickness, it's honeycombed everywhere. So I'm given to understand. In its passages and galleries, there dwell an innumerable soldiery, ready to defend it, just as termites defend their ox-high earthen nests on the pampas of the north. Uh, Talos and Baldanders have come south through the wall twice before, and once going north over the last five years. I think we were speculating on whether they had made the trip once over five years. And yes, essentially they did. They went through this gate. Then they passed through Nessus, and that took about a year. They exited to the south through the Sorrowing Gate, and then they recently returned through the other southern gate called the Praise Gate. And now they've made the complete circuit and are going back through Piteus to the north. And every time they pass through any of these gates, there are these windows and creatures. Talos says, I do not doubt that there are among them many who search for some particular miscreant, and that if they were to see the one they seek, they would sally out and lay hold of him. And I think that's going to come up later, people. Then Jonas hears Talos and says, I beg your pardon, Optimus, but I could not help overhearing what you said, and I can enlighten you further if you wish. Talos is fine with making conversation with a stranger, but he makes it clear that he is to ask no questions about their group and he will extend the same courtesy to him, which is interesting. Uh, what do you think Talos is nervous about? I, yeah, that I think just having to explain more, especially if he gets the sense that, you know, Jonas seems to know a lot of things and he doesn't want to have to explain more about himself, that if Jonas actually has some context for all this stuff, then that could be a problem. Because right now, Talos is having fun making sure that he controls the context of everything that everybody knows. And yep, doesn't want to get into that. Also, I like the uh, little drawl that you gave Jonas there. Oh, yeah, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> well, he has to sound different from Talon. <laughs> Jonas admits that he had intended to ask about them. He wanted to know why they are traveling with and why this lady, the loveliest I've ever seen, is walking in the dust. And Chalenta is demonstrably offended at this compliment. <laughs> she lets go of his stirrup strap and says, you're poor. Goodman, from the look of you, and no longer young. It hardly suits you to inquire of me. <laughs> Notice she calls him Goodman and not Optimate. She does not think he deserves the rank of gentleman, a, a significant class distinction. And it's probably an accurate one, but you know, she's still a pretty haughty and mean to this stranger she's been taking protection from without permission. But apparently she knows that it's precisely the right thing to say because it only makes him want her more, basically. Yeah. Well, Jonas is capable of shame. And Severin can see Jonas's cheeks flush with embarrassment. And for a few seconds, he doesn't say anything. Which is an important point, by the way, to, to give a very specific biological thing to Jonas at that point is a nice little bit of misleading. Because he said he's going to tell us that his, his bio parts are the prosthetics. Yep. So yep. During this exchange, Severian notes his metal hand, which he assumes to be prosthetic, but it is you know the other fleshy hand that's the prosthetic. 
at last, Jonas begins his explanation. Now, remember, this was led from the discussion of whether they were watching for some miscreant or, or, or outlaw or something, and that they were to come out and get him if they saw him. The story goes, quote, In the olden times, the lords of this world feared no one but their own people, and to defend themselves against them built a great fortress on a hilltop in the north of the city. It was not called Nessus then, for the river was unpoisoned. Uh, we talk about the name Nessus and Jonas's supposition that it's called that because the river was poisoned, which supposes that Jonas is aware of the mythical centaur named Nessus, who was killed with a poison arrow, and used his bloody shirt to post-mortem kill Hercules. But I'm inclined to believe Jonas is wrong about that. But, you know, it could go either way, that Nessus is a metaphor or Buenos Aires is a metaphor. Jonas might or might not know the original name of the city. Now, I suppose the fortress to the north of Nessus was the citadel, Severian's hometown. And in fact, he uses the word citadel in the, the next paragraph. He talks about the citadel. Yeah. But now the citadel, instead of being well to the north of the city, is well to the south of the living part of the city. He says, Many of the people were angry at the building of that citadel, holding it to be their right to slay their lords without hindrance, if they so desired. But others <laughs> went out in ships that ply between the stars, returning with treasure and knowledge. In time, they returned a woman who had gained nothing among them but a handful of black beans. Uh, once again, Michael Andre Dreese theorizes that the reference to leaving for the stars so close to the reference of the Citadel suggests that the Citadel served as an interstellar port. Uh, well, given that those ships are stationed there, that seems believable. But he theorizes that it is the only port on Earth, or at least in the Commonwealth, which, you know, I don't know, feels more of a stretch. But it is an important question for Michael because it feeds into a theory of why Jonas's ship crashed, because Jonas says the reason they crashed was it had been so long on Earth that there was no port when they returned, no dock. Right. I I don't think this had to be, but remember that Jonas says we, and we don't know exactly who we is, except that Kim Lee Sung was his navigator. And it's been a long time since this happened. One thing I like about this theory is that it does try to tie a bunch of threads together. And my only problem is that I want to tie, you know, more stuff together and to tie it into bigger threads. <laughs> At this, Talos says, ah, you're our professional tale teller. So are we. But Jonas says, no, this is the only tale I know, or nearly so. So why is this the only story he knows? Maybe because it's his own story. It's his own story, yeah. I think that's the most obvious way to read that. Then does he have a direct connection to this woman with the black beans? He may well. I mean, he does seem to know a lot about Baya when he has his little conversation with Severian in the beginning. He seems to know a lot and says that he's not going to tell him everything that he knows. Oh, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that's that's what I think that has to mean right there. I can't think of anything else really that it could, you know, with, without having any other context or information, I can't think of anything else that he could mean there. But- Despite Jolenta's meanness to him, he says to her, may I continue most marvelous of women? <laughs> <laughs> and, and he does. He says, she displayed the beans to the lords of men, 
and told them that unless she were obeyed, she would cast them into the sea and so put an end to the world. They had her seized and torn to bits, for they were a hundred times more complete in their domination than our autarch. Remember, a lot for a lot, there's been a lot of speculation that maybe these beans are the megatherians, right? That you throw them in the water. Because there's, there's 17 megatherians and there's only five beans, so I don't know. Mm-hmm. It could be that the beans were, you know, who knows, giant seeds, giant things, pods. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's the way he's telling it is fairy, fairy tale like. But, but yeah, that when he says a handful of black beans, that it's uh, something different than that. Although I suppose you could have seventeen right beans in your hand, right? Well, you know, we don't know what happened to those beans. They tore to bits, but they may have got out anyway. Mm-hmm. And then Jalenta, by the way, says something just to remind you of the title of the book and a bigger context. <laughs> yeah. She says automatically, may he endure to the, see the new sun. She, if, whenever there's a mention of the autark, she automatically you know, speaks the, the, the words of praise regarding the autark. I, she's really the only person I've ever heard mm-hmm. really do that. But apparently it is very common among the common folk. Although I, we have heard Talos do that. And we should probably mention before that in the middle of this story, Wolf does give a tiny little break just to let us know that something else is going on where Severian looks up to the front and sees the disturbance among all the vehicles that clog the road as many sought to start to turn back. So all of a sudden there's a big traffic jam way up there and people are trying to turn around and they start to hear people whip their horses and trying to come back. But he's still listening to Jonas's story. And again, you know, the story of of Jonas, the implication is that he, a guy who has been wandering around for a while, has some personal part to play in this story. We know he's a sailor. We know that he's been, you know, out of time. He seems to have been in the same situation as Hathor, as we discussed in, you know, chapter 30, Lost Between the Stars. But if Jonas and Hathor know each other, they never say so. But then by the same token... Hather's kind of made himself scarce by now, so maybe they wouldn't have seen each other. Yeah, Jonas may never have seen Heather at this point. Yep. Which, if they do know each other, then that would explain why Hathor never tries to reconnect with Severian and become his servant. Right. And we got to notice, too, that when Heather does see him, it's only when Jonas is away or has walked on or mm-hmm. something like that, that Heather never approaches him unless Jonas is asleep or somewhere else. Yep. But while, like you said, while Jonas is telling all this story, Severian is noticing at the northern end of the gate, there's a disturbance going on. The passage is clogged with vehicles, but people are trying to turn back the press from behind. They're trying to go south again and escape from something on that end. Dorcas tightens her grip on Severian's arm and asks, why are they so frightened? Suddenly a guy on a wagon just ahead of them and on the other side of Jonas is lashing his horse forward, not being too careful. He flicks Dorcas's cheek with the iron tip of his whip. Then she screams and buries her face in her hands. And and Severian reaches over, grabs the guy by the ankle and, and pulls him out of the wagon. There's real confusion going on. He says, quote, All the gate was ringing with bawling and swearing and the cries of injured and the bellowings of frightened animals. When he pulls him off the wagon, the guy was immediately trampled. 
by the people and carts rushing, I guess, in every direction now. Uh, this is anticlimactic for Severian because he had intended to impress Dorcas <laughs> by showing off the excruciation called two apricots. Way to go, Severian. Which I think, by the way, you can guess probably what the two apricots are. <laughs> <laughs> At least I can. What, yeah. He should have called them the, the avocados because that literally means. Yeah. <laughs> the chapter and volume ends with even his screams were lost. Okay, Craig, now it's time for us to address, again, what this disturbance is up ahead. Right. So this is the big cliffhanger that Shadow ends with that confuses everyone and that's frustrating when you're reading it because you're like, how can a book end like this? <laughs> and that I always wonder what people who read Shadow just in the first little <laughs> yeah. first edition and had to wait a while were like, what the hell? Like, we didn't even know there was some crisis going on up there and it seems so random and it's a cliffhanger but it's not a cliffhanger that really seems to connect to anything it's just all of a sudden there's a riot in the street and you don't know why but we've been talking and i think i've got now a better sense of what i think we're actually supposed to think happened and we had talked before that maybe this was not a joke but a bit of a a little game that wolf was playing that maybe it wasn't all that mysterious because we get yeah listener yeah go ahead listener obi-wan spicoli laid this all out for us remember and i still love that name <laughs> palamon warns severian not to take the roads on his way to Thrax. This is Shadow the Torturer, Chapter 13, The Lictor of Thrax. He says, I mean to warn you against taking the roads. They are patrolled by Ulans under orders to kill anyone found upon them, and since they have permission to loot the bodies of those they slay, they are not much inclined to ask excuses. After the disturbance at the end of Shadow, we have to wait until Chapter 12 of Claw the Conciliator, The Notules, before we get any explanation, because this is a wolf story. There it says, The day before we had seen Ulans on patrol, men mounted much as we were, and bearing lances like those that had killed the travelers at the piteous gate. And then, in Citadel of the Autark, in the very first chapter, the dead soldier, Severian gets more explicit. It was much like the old road the Ulans had been blocking when I became separated from Dr. Talos, Baldanders, Jalinta, and Dorcas, when we left Nessus, but I was unprepared for the cloud of dust that hung about it. Notice he doesn't even mention Haythor, by the way. And then finally, maybe, you know, Wolf was getting questions about it, but in Earth of the New Sun, chapter 34, Saltus again, he says, A good ends there, I answered. I know thinking as I did how Jonas and I had walked there through the forest after the Ulans had scattered our party at the piteous gate of finding the wine in our ewer and many other things. So, Craig, what do we know? The Ulans were blocking the road to the Del Autark. They killed travelers there, Law, Claw of the Conciliator, and they scattered the Talos Severian party, Earth of the New Sun. There's no mention of anything else at the end of the gate. And we are given explicit warning that the Ulans are a deadly menace to travelers on the road. Means, motive, opportunity, and multiple witness testimony. Granted, <laughs> I have in the past proven way too optimistic about the potential for consensus in this book. But I think that settles it. It's just Ulans all the way 
down. <laughs> and I will detail these quotes and their locations in the show notes. Yeah, they just weren't supposed to be on the road. So the Ulans, yeah, just attacked them because they weren't supposed to be traveling. Right. Oh, wait, what's this? Lexicon Earth, this entry in Propitious Gate, says the disturbance is a security alert potentially caused by one of Hathor's pets. Well, that's strange. Here, let, me, let me just type off a question to Michael. <laughs> yeah, and I can remember reading that a long time ago and dismissing it because I'm like, that can't be. They, they, there's nothing in the story that says the Heather pulled out a monster there. That's right. Oh, wait. Hey, we got an email back from Mantis. Okay. He says, um, granted all that you say about the roads and the Ulans. A few points. One, Baldanders and Talos have been through the gate a couple times at least, and they do not issue any warnings to the new members of the party. The suggestion is that they were surprised by what happened. Doesn't seem to be the usual thing. Two, the party is deep inside the gate tunnel when it happens. Three, finally, Mantis proposes that something happened outside the gate, and what the party experienced was the ripple. That outside the gate is a bear patch, and then the road starts, and he supposes the daily commuters come out of the gate and immediately dog left or right, depending on where they're going. And this is critical because you can't cross the road if you make a mistake. So the civilian pathway is a Y coming out of the gate, whereas the military can go straight on the road. So Mantis figures Hathor faded away from the party and set up a monster ambush. It was a spectacular monster rather than a subtle one, hence the panic, which perhaps thwarted the whole thing. Jonas had told his tale of the black beans. He says, I don't think anyone has black beans, but I'm willing to entertain the notion that Hathor has bits of sailcloth, which might register on the same level of prohibitive technology. Under that condition, the freaky super soldiers pour out of the wall trying to grab Hathor, but end up causing a panic with their presence. And Mark Aramini agrees with Mantis in general, but he proffers that it is, quote, an elegant assassination attempt by the Megatherians to push folks onto the road via telekinesis or whatever, and thereby set up a situation where the Ulans are firing into the crowd in hopes the variant catches a laser blast to the head. Mark says, <laughs> Mark says that Obi-Wan Spicoli makes him so mad. He's so sure he's right. It's like it can be the only one thing. Mark is so cute. That's I want to give him a hug. <laughs> we, we might take that out. <laughs> so, Craig, I think the people who say the disturbance was caused by the Ulans have the strongest argument. We have a setup from Palamon followed by three references that was doubled down on all the way to Earth of the New Sun. But. But. Yeah, if uh, we remember one basic thing from the beginning, the title of the chapter is Heather. And we were talking before about how normally in a wolf story, the character that's named has a big role to play at the end of the chapter. Now, that's not a rule, right? That's, but it certainly seems to be normal. So why would a really important chapter not follow the same thing? Well, as we the problem though that we said is that Heather disappears, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But if you think about the context, right? This is after Agilus has been killed. Agia has presumably hired Heather, and that's why he's coming to 
join up and offer all his services and being so obsequious and, and deferential to Severian and everyone else because he really needs to be in here. So maybe now he's he's obviously probably not maybe he is very probably now on the job and going to look for an opportunity to get Severian. So that's the general context. So maybe, yeah, Heather has an opportunity to let something out here at the end. So on that sense, when what Manda says about maybe it was caused by one of Heather's creatures. Okay. The nice thing though, is that when you actually go look at the other things that Heather does or in the chapter, everything that he does, Wolf gives us a seemingly very obvious reason for why he does it. Like he goes up to Severian and he says, Hey, can I, you know, can I hold your sword for you? You look so tired with it. Well, that's sort of a good thing in general, right? To get the weapon away from the guy. But it's especially good if you're just about to set something on him, right? It would be really good. So that's one thing that kind of also leads in the favor of that. And then the last thing that we see Heather do is in that part where Severian is talking about how strange it is to be in the wall and and how everyone seems very humble, what Heather does is he bows his head. And Severian lists that along with other people being very awed and sort of overwhelmed and, and feeling very humbled by everything, or intimidated even. But we also know that Talus has said that, hey, those cacogens and creatures in there are often said to be looking for somebody that they need to get. And as soon as they espy them, they're going to come out. Well, helps if your face is down when nobody can see it. Yeah, maybe he's not hanging his head, he's ducking his head. Um, and especially if he's still ducking his head or still wearing that cap pulled way down over his eyes, right? Like that's the detail too that we're, we're told about how he wears his cap. And then the fact that he's gone. He's gone, he's not there when all of this stuff takes place and he's nowhere around. All of that to me, along with the fact that the title of the chapter is called Heather and the fact that we know that Heather is precisely going to create creatures to try and kill Severian all the other times. Even there's a small thing, but even that point that you said the next time it gets addressed is the chapter in Claw the Conciliar called the Notules, which are the creatures that, of course, Heather uses to kill them. Not necessarily meaning that these are the notules that he let loose here. Who knows? We don't know what they, what kind of creature it might have been, but it's just another connection of Heather with the with the wall there. With all that happening, the way that that Heather acts, the suspiciousness, and then putting together what we know about him later, I think that's the best option there because it's it actually also then ties into the story that, like I was saying, it's a weird cliffhanger that seems to come out of left field. Like, why is there a riot on the road? Well, if it's because Heather has just tried to kill Severian for the first time, that's intricately wound up with so much of the drama of the rest of the story that what's actually happening here is centrally important to Severian's story. This is the first time that this guy who's going to try and kill him over and over and over in the rest of the book actually tries it. So if that's it, that's a lot of good reason to think that, yeah, what's actually happening here? Heather has let some creature out or... Maybe they've just seen him at some point earlier and they're now trying to come out and get him. And that just causes all the rest of the other. Yeah, maybe he's on the most wanted list. They're looking for him. He knows it. They've seen him and they're trying to get him. How did he get away? Uh, well, you know, he's surprisingly agile, as Severian says. The thing is, Craig, if this is true, it means that Severian never realized that Haythor for one reason or another, was the cause of the turmoil. 
That's right. That resulted in the Ulans rushing the crowds and ultimately killing the travelers. And you know what that means? Wolf does not play fair with us <laughs> because there's no specific textual support for this theory. But I still do think it makes sense because, and really it all comes down to structure. It's all structure. It's the interlacing of Talus's and Jonas's conversation about them looking for some miscreant and that they're going to come out and sally forth and get him if they see him. It's the fact that it's called Hethor, that Hethor has the, shows up at the beginning, but we don't see him at the end because all of this action is about Hethor. Obi-Wan Spicoli is right on the text, yeah. but this chapter is framed in a way that makes me say, hold on. So- yeah, that's what we're up against, <laughs> in in my opinion. I think that Mantis Mark are right. I think that there is more going on here. Right. And the one thing it does, too, is if Severian never quite put that together, then he doesn't have to lie to us in order to keep this seeming kind of mysterious throughout the passage. In fact, what he's done by telling us about the Ulans is just explaining what he thinks. Like he's, I think he's probably saying, oh yeah, I remember I got mm -hmm. advice from Palmon about get off the road, but he's just got it wrong. So he's not lying to us. You know, he's not being an unreliable narrator in the sense of being deceptive. He just- Well, he's unreliable in the sense that we're all unreliable. Right. He's unreliable because he's, he's not right. omniscient. Yeah. That's so wrong <laughs> for something <laughs> that is so puzzling to begin with that he pieces information to us all throughout the entire solar cycle. And it's wrong. It's not true. But it is funny when you go back and look at this chapter and those couple things that Heather does seem in some ways obvious. Like, well, yeah, he's totally trying to take the sword away from him. And he's totally trying to not be seen yeah. by the, the guards or whatever. Mm -hmm. That once you read it, it seems like those details stand out. And like I said, even the time when they compare Heather later when he's not around, to me this time it even read like, oh yeah, he's kind of pointing out, hey, remember I haven't mentioned Heather in the last couple pages of, of the action here? <laughs> but yeah, that's to me that makes sense. And plus the reason I like it so much is not just because of those details, but really because it means that what actually happens here is important to the story. Mm -hmm. And it's part of the larger narrative that it's not just a random mystery. It doesn't lead to something that is totally obscure. And it's not like, I always felt like when, even when I did think that it was just the Ulan's attacking people on the road, I was like, well, that's kind of cheating. Yeah. Like that's sort of an uninteresting mm -hmm. solution to a puzzle, right? It doesn't really tell us much of anything about the world or anything, but if we see here that Heather is doing this, then it also sets up Heather as much more dangerous much more devious because he can attack you without you even know you knowing you're being attacked. And it actually makes to me, Heather seem even more dangerous. Or he's so dangerous and deadly that the heroes are on the hunt for him. Yeah, that too. So I like it. I like it. That's where I am now. That's this part now, which is kind of nice. Cause I've, <laughs> I remember reading that little bit in Lexicon Arthas and just kind of dismissing it as, well, there's no reason to think that, but now I think that. The truth is I really am convinced really more than anything by the just the general structure which of this chapter, which is, I don't know, it's strange. It's strange for someone to have a list of textual evidence <laughs> that is really compelling and really convincing and say, yeah, but look how this chapter is arranged. <laughs> so, yeah. And, and to find that that's, oh yeah, so much information conveyed there. 
So the other thing I like about this is that it structurally keeps even better parallels between the very first chapter and the last chapter. Because the last bit of this chapter, Severian comes right out and says, I've taken you from the first gate to the last gate, right? He points out that idea that both the beginning and the end of the story happen at gates. And they're all sort of a gate into a wider world where things are much more complicated. And in both of those cases, something really dangerous happens to Severian that leads to all kinds of changes and all kinds of important things for him. I just realized the the first chapter starts with Severian falling in the company of a criminal. Last chapter ends with Severian falling in the company of a criminal. Yeah, there's all kinds of parallels there. Like that's a really good one. The idea that something that he can't really see is going on. It happens all in the dark, right? In both cases, but it's also that Vodalus sets him on this, on this path of thinking that he's really important or that something about him is, is mysterious and adventuresome. And here, Heather is putting him on a path that he's going to have to fight. And, and Heather's engagement with him sends him in all kinds of weird directions later in the book. So it works so much better than just random violence happening at the end that seems like a weird plot device to scatter the characters. And as far as this ending, I guess we should probably talk about it. Um, Once upon a time, children, the quality of a book was not estimated by the pound. A big doorstopper of a book was not a selling point in itself. In fact, just the opposite. (laughs) So Wolf's novel had to be broken up. Even three separate volumes, the standard due to Lord of the Rings, was not enough for the book to be marketable. It had to be four. So here, Wolf interjects an artificial ending to this volume. He says, Here I pause, having carried you, reader, from gate to gate, from the locked and fog-shrouded gate of our necropolis to this gate with its curling wisps of smoke, this gate, which is perhaps the largest in existence, perhaps the largest ever to exist, It was by entering that first gate that I set my feet upon the road that brought me to this second gate. And surely when I entered this second gate, I began again to walk a new road. And from that great gate forward for a long time, it was to lay outside the city imperishable and among the forests and grasslands, mountains and jungles of the north. Here I pause. If you wish to walk no farther with me, reader, I cannot blame you. It is no easy road. The guy who recommended this book to me, hello, Brett, particularly noted this ending to be something different, worth noting. There's an appendix, finally, at the end of this, and it's primarily Wolf offering himself as the translator. He starts by clarifying that all the words are more or less real rather than invented, as is typical in science fiction fantasy genre. He says, In rendering this book, originally composed in a tongue that has not yet achieved existence, into English, I might easily have saved myself a great deal of labor by having recourse to invented terms. In no case have I done so. Thus, in many instances, I have been forced to replace yet undiscovered concepts by their closest 20th century equivalents. Such words as peltist, androgyne, and Exultant are substitutions of this kind and are intended to be suggestive rather than definitive. And then he tells us that the use of the term metal is an unreliable one. Anything that if you went there and you saw it, you would assume it was a kind of metal is described as metal. And the animals described are not not necessarily the actual 
animal's name. They are intended to be suggestive of a domesticated animal's use or a wild animal's features. Severian himself talks as if they are prehistorically restored species. Wolf, the author, pretends to struggle with this, but they could result from biogenic manipulation or the importation of extrasolar breeding stock. In all cases, Wolf has replaced it with an extinct species. Right, which is just such a fun method to do things because it means that you can get away with all kinds of things. It's a Wolfian because it both reveals something about it, but also conceals it and and kind of makes it mysterious because we can learn about these things that we're not really able to imagine yet because they're so far in the future. Um, so everything that gives us a hint about something is also obscuring something at the same time, which is just frustrating, but fun. <laughs> <laughs> and he explains that what is obvious upon close reading that destriers are not horses, even though the word technically refers to horses, they're faster than horses and more resistant to damage. Also, he doesn't mention it, but they have long tusks or canines, and their primary value is that the cavalry can use them to charge enemy ranks that are shooting high-energy armament, just as armies did you know, 200 years ago before the invention of repeater rifles and automatic weapons. So Wolf has imagined a world where the ancient and advanced coexist. When Valeria reads the Latin inscription, that's not really Latin. It represents a language Severian considers obsolete and an educated person like Valeria might still read, just as you know, some people read cuneiform 2,000 years ago or so. Right. And the suggestion, of course, is that it could be English. We just don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, who knows? But Wolf says, you know, what the actual language may have been, I cannot say. And this is a little like the theme song of Mystery Science Theater 3000. If you wonder how he eats and breathes and other science facts, you know, just repeat to yourself, it's just a show. I should really just relax. We have gone very far into not taking that advice. Yeah, that's true. That's true. We're not going to do that. Uh, of course, what Wolf, the author, gives with one hand, he takes with the other. And that's why we have a podcast, folks. Finally, Wolf has an excellent tongue-in-cheek ending to the story. He says, to those who have preceded me in the study of the post-historic world, and particularly those collectors too numerous to name here, who have permitted me to examine artifacts surviving so many centuries of futurity, and most especially those who have allowed me to visit and photograph the era's few extant buildings, I am truly grateful. <laughs> It's tongue in cheek. It can read as like, thanks to all the other sci-fi people who I borrowed ideas from. Right. I mean, there's, there's something of that, but it's that last bit about the few extant buildings mm -hmm. that he's visited. Yeah. That I wonder if there's something specific he has in mind about there's still things. And, and we, of course we get to the. Like pulp covers. Could be, but also I didn't know if he's saying that if that's some hint that there actually is some structure that, is supposed to last into the future that that is still around now but it, that it's called by a different name i don't know but that's the one that i the one bit that i found intriguing this time i'm thinking is is that a is that a hint or is that just him being playful again um and i also like the idea that there are countless collectors like that's where i thought about the other writers of sort of historians of the future 
writers and fans and all of those. And those who preceded him in the study of the post-historic world. Yeah. In his other appendices, he does have something that sort of leads to one of the puzzles, right? And that's the one bit here where I was like, is, is there a puzzle with that about the few extant buildings? Um, I'm not sure. I just don't know. But if you have an idea, please let me know. Otherwise, I feel like this one was necessary for him to kind of get out there and be like, look, okay, if you're going to read this, here's how the words work. <laughs> you know, go look them up because they're real words. I didn't just make them up. Because, he, yeah, he did so much work <laughs> using those. Although, I mean, that must have been a lot more fun to do when you think about it. So there's still much to be said. It's sort of weird to think the number of hours we've spent on Shadow, and I've still got more to say. So especially after this chapter, but right now, we'll save that for a summary chapter to go back on and look at this first book as a whole and talk about the stuff that we expected, the things that were surprising, the kind of things we didn't expect to have our minds changed on, and especially with everybody else's input, which has been so fun. But yeah, for right now, we probably ought to end with a gate to the next episode. That's right. So until then, we certainly hope you do have comments, thoughts, corrections, and complaints, and that you will bring them to us on the Facebook group, the subreddit, Twitter, or email. And you can find out how to do all that on the show notes. Leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Tell your wolf reading friends. Thanks for sticking with us for so long. And until you hear from us next, may the Moira favor you. Take care. The river shows no mercy. The tower looms into my view. I sense my execution's glow. delectation that she could be a sex doll from there you know i yeah gosh every the trouble with Aggie is that everything makes sense you can <laughs> pull it here you can pull a thread there and i don't know she, I, well i mean look at haythor so yeah i like where we're going with haythor that's going to be good well um i i am convinced that this is this uh this uproar is caused by haythor the, the just the overall structure of the chapter it's called Haythor. I mean, he's only in for like the first third as being something key. And then he's not there at the end, which is where that, you know, whoever's named after the, the chapter, that's where they always appear. Because that's the big, that's the big antagonism that's going to be there for so much of the rest of the books that it's, it's a meaningful cliffhanger, which I think is one thing that frustrated people so much about not knowing what caused that was like, what, why, why this, why, what does this have to do with anything? Right. So. But that makes it actually circle back around, which is more satisfying. Yeah. And, and it fits internally when because they're talking about if they see a miscreant that they're looking for, which makes me think, I don't think Haythor, you know, released a pet or anything. I think he must be on their most wanted list.
Oh, maybe they just saw him. Yeah. Well, he does put his head down, right? Like it's that, it, and it's such a. Yeah, exactly. That's it. You brought that up and I said, oh yeah, yeah. No, he doesn't just hang his head. He's ducking. Yeah. And it's fit so perfectly too, because, because Severian says everybody else felt like I did. And Dorcas did seemed quieted and Heather hung his head, Yeah, <laughs> but it's such a cool Wolfian way to put something in there for the totally opposite re- or not opposite, but totally different reason. People who are insisting that, oh, well, you, all you do, do is just look for this clue and this clue. It's a puzzle. It's a puzzle. No, it's not. It's more than a puzzle. If this is true. It's, it's, you have to read this structurally like a sonnet. All right, cool. We shouldn't go any further and we should actually get in there <laughs> and get the discussion where it goes. Okay, here we go. Yep, we're good. Long I signed on the silver ship. Is that right? Long I signed on the silver ships. Yeah. Long I, s- yeah. Oh, and I don't know if this is a typo thing. Colsack mm-hmm. is just like, all I could find is. Colstack. Yeah, Colstack. Uh, there's right. no T. Colsack, at least in my version. Oh, mine is Colsack. Really? Are you- oh, yours has a T? Yeah, coal stack, oh. which makes sense, like the stacks in an old steamship. Right. Oh, yep. Mine. This is which one is this? This is the. Uh... Hang on, I've got, I've got my Easton Press, Shadow of the Torture, right over here. Hang on. And pull out my old uh, paperback. Hold on. <sighs> Maybe my, it may, you know it made perfect sense before and if i find out it's coal sack i'm gonna be really disappointed okay let me see in the uh the timescape paperback let me see there we go cold cold stack yeah coal stack your thing anything yep the paperback has stack so i'm guessing then if all these other versions have stack then this is the second edition of the this is the second edition of the orb one of the two two and one and it's not the first time it was printed. It's the second one that has like the smaller picture and the little green thing in the top left. This tour or? I don't know. But that's interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Because I was trying, I was doing all kinds of things about Colsack. Where could they possibly make a mistake like that on the, such a later version? Uh-oh. What? Am I gone? Uh, you're, Are you back now? Oh, yeah. You went away for oh, a while. Okay. Gotcha. It mine was still recording, but I don't know. I hope that was there. I think it is. So in a little over an hour, the theater is entirely pot. <laughs> the theater is entirely pot. <laughs> oh, you know what? Speaking of an hour, we're at an hour. Let's stop it and do another one here. Okay. I'm trying to think. I don't have very much else to say. <laughs> that's all I got for that. Let me throw it in there. That's pretty good. <laughs> and that's enough. <laughs> So I'll just, yeah, I can, I can wrap up. Actually, that was good timing. Yeah, that was a long freaking episode.